Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning. You're on RealityCheck.radio and it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've got a great show coming up. Oh, marvellous show. First up, we've got Roe Edge just back from Denver, Colorado, and she's going to be telling us about the summit that she attended and all that she learnt there, International Women's Sports Summit. Uh, so I can't wait to hear about that because there are some very exciting women uh, presenting at that seminar. And Row Edge, of course, is lovely. And we've got my great friend Don Brash along to discuss inflation, why interest rates have to go up when it's so painful at a painful time. We're also going to ask him about GST on food. Um, should it be on? Should it be off? What are the implications? And let me do this promo. If you love Reality Check Radio, you're going to love this. You can become a foundation member. It costs very, very little money, and it means such a lot to us to keep us on the road. And so you'll get the being a supporter, being a part in a more tangible way of Reality Check Radio. You can find out how to join just by going to www.realitycheck.radio. I got myself caught up in the Ws. And sign up to be a foundation member, particularly if you do it now on Sunday night, we're going to have sort of like a backstage because we're going to have a big meeting on Zoom this Sunday on the 6th of August. And there'll be um, Peter Williams, myself, Paul Brennan, Kim Slater, Marie Buskey. It's going to be fun because we can all interact and talk and do a bit of a show all together, be an experiment. So do do that and do send me a text at 2057, send me an email, inbox at reallycheck.radio. If you can't afford it, we understand perfectly, and we don't disavow anyone. Everyone's entitled to be a part of our family. Uh, but if you can and you want to contribute and you want to support, it's not much, not a lot, but it'll make a big difference to us and to everyone that enjoys listening to us and all those that would love listening to us but haven't yet heard us. So thank you for that. Great show coming up. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. 
you can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we've got, well, I talk about favorites, but this is one of my favorites. Um, you can email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. See the text 2057. And we have the very wonderful Ro Edge. Good morning, Ro. Good morning, Rodney. How are you? So good to be talking to you. And I love your tweets. I don't tweet myself. I suppose we call it posting now because we're on X. And um, but I I follow you and I you've got no idea how much you keep me informed of things that are happening because you link to things and all the rest of it. And so thank you for your tweets because you're sending them out there. I never reply. And um, I think I love Elon Musk's tweets and I love yours. And then I follow a whole lot of other people too, but yours have somehow, you've got a great skill at it. Oh gosh, thank you. <laughs> it may be because you and I think the same and the stuff that you link to is always of interest to me. So thank you for that. Now, you've been off to the United States to the International Women's Sports Summit. Was that what, what it was called? It was indeed in Denver. And and Denver. It was amazing. I'm going to come to that in Denver, Colorado, but I've got to play <clears throat> devil's advocate with you because I get pushback on this transgender thing. And I regard this transgender thing as a bigger threat to us than climate change and a bigger threat to us than COVID, which both are enormous and civilization changing. But nothing to me cuts as deep as what is happening in the transgender or gender ideology is what I'd call it. And I detect as I move around and I speak even to listeners, they're totally unaware of what is happening. And even parents at our local school appear totally unaware of what is happening. And so I want to challenge you a little on it for you to explain to us why what is happening is so significant. Now, here's a here's a devil's advocate point. Look, transgenderism, it's one or two people, you know, they're people too, and we just got to respect them as people and treat them with kindness, right? And here... You are, meaning me or you, um, hating on them. What do you say to that? Well, there was a really interesting um, presentation at the summit, actually. Like, I, you think that you know a lot about this fight because you've been in it for years and years, but there was a couple of presentations that really, really chilled me to my bones at this at this summit. One of them was by um, a psychologist called Suzanne Verling, now she talked about the colonization and God, can I get the word out? Conv, 
Anyway, com- com- commodification of that's women. the word. Thank you. It's too early on a Monday morning of woman and, and what she calls the fourth industrial revolution. And it's about how we're turning women into a currency. Like you, and you think about it, like eggs and surrogacy. You know, the New Zealand government wants to pass laws to make surrogacy easier. And um, in California, they're actually making it law in health policies that health insurers have to provide surrogacy to gay men as a given, like, so they're using women's bodies as a commodity. You look at the rise of prostitution and sex trafficking around the world, the gender reassignment in industry, like, you know, they're, they're playing with our young girls' bodies for money. You know, it's, it's just, it's sick. But um, yeah, so she did this really, really interesting um, presentation on it. And she talked about how gender ideology is basically it's capturing our wives and mothers, our daughters, like it's capturing everybody. And even for men, it's basically making like a mockery of men as well, because it's saying men can be women and just, yeah, it's like a colonization on human bodies. And, but, but women and girls are particularly impacted by it. And it's not just small anymore. You look at the indoctrination that's happening in our schools, even like, you know, in our kindies and, and stuff, that the gender ideology is everywhere. We're teaching kids that they can be, their bodies can be changed and can be commodified into anything that they desire when it's not a reality and it's actually destroying their bodies and their futures. It's huge. I think it's one of the biggest problems that we've got. It's I concur, but I'm playing devil's advocate. There's only a few dozen trans people in New Zealand in reality. Um, This is a a bit of a fad. Um, Why can't you just allow for some diversity? Like, And what are you going to do to that little girl that feels she's a boy? But this isn't about diversity. The whole trans trans ideology is actually reinforcing the really old type stereotypes that we all escaped from in the 80s and 90s. It's basically saying if you're a young boy and you're a bit feminine and you like pink, then you must be a girl. And so we're going to transition you to be a to be a to be a girl. So you fit that stereotype. Whereas we should be saying boys can be whoever they want to be across the spectrum. It doesn't matter how feminine they want to be. They can wear dresses if they want. They can, you know, do whatever they want, but they're still males and they don't have to change their body to be who they've got to be. Now we're telling kids that they have to actually medically and surgically change their bodies to be something that they're not to fit. So they don't fit a stereotype. It's, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just mad. Well, it's mad and hard to understand, right? And I'm with you totally because this is about the elimination of men and women. The dehumanization of society. Yes. And I have always been a live and let live person. But I realize with this, the movement isn't about live and let live. The movement is about attack on each and every one of us by these activists because we are the ones not allowed to exist. 
I have no problem with a trans person living and enjoying a great life. None whatsoever. But I have to be able to live. I have to be able to talk. I have to be able to have a view and express my view. And I resolutely demand that my girls, my wife, and my mother are treated with respect and that their privacy is sacrosanct. And what has happened is in the interests of something that has been destroyed and people regard it as just a natural extension of homosexual law reform, where we say, look, it appears people are gay, they choose to be gay, we're not going to lock them up any longer, because, quote, they can't help it, is the sort of thought that was said at the time, and they don't hurt anyone. And you say, well, the next thing then is, as part of this live and let live, is to say over here there are people who are trans. Now, what I find interesting about that is this queer theory or gender ideology is totally opposed to homosexual rights, mm. isn't it? Well, it actually is. It's the biggest conversion theory and therapy for homosexuals we've ever seen. Way yes, worse than anything that ever happened earlier on. Yes, if I'm a young boy who's attracted to boys, you know, as I head into puberty, um, they the trans activists, and I mean this genuinely, literally the school teachers, and what our children are being taught in school is that that young boy isn't homosexual. He's actually a girl. Right? And homosexuality is being erased. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they and, find a lot of the detransitioners when they um, survey them. So detransitioners, for people that aren't aware, of people that have gone through, like, basically – um, converting or transitioning to the, I'll put other sex and no commas there, um, and then they decide we'll grow up and work out that that was completely wrong and they were actually, you know, happy being female or male. That's who they should have always been. And like by far the majority of them are, are gay and lesbians. So it is, it's a, it's a massive big conversion therapy. So, it, I mean, it's wrong and it's bad on so many levels. There are some people that have always felt that they were born in the wrong body, especially um, it used to be predominantly older men. Um, the, there is a term for the majority of them, autogynephilia. It's older males who get off on dressing up as women and being being in women's places in spaces. So, and I think that's probably that predominantly a large number of the older men that we see identifying as trans these days, the ones that ah. are really barging and pushing their ways into female spaces because they need to be validated with that identity as well. And it's violent because it's sort of hooked into their sexual urges. Well, it is. It's part of their sexual fetish. Gee whiz. Um, 
I think it's hard to appreciate too how pervasive this is in our schools. Yeah, I mean, I don't have children at school now. I'm so I am so grateful my children escaped school before all of this ideology came in, literally by a matter of years. So, but you know, for those that do, it is having a profound effect. You know, it's amazing how many people I hear say that their their nieces or nephews or daughters or grandchildren are being impacted by this. Yeah, my 10-year-old and 12-year-old think I'm a transphobe and um and then have a giggle. Um, and they, well, the 10-year-old doesn't, the 12-year-old has, quote, gay friends and trans friends at her school. They're her age, 12. Now, everyone listening knows that's poppycock and Mm. find it very hard to believe. But trust me, um, just like we used to have kids wearing pink hair or, in my day, Beatlemania, and you would wear a Beatles haircut and try and get away with having hair on the top of your ears. And now it's cool to be trans. And in fact, being just everyday gay doesn't quite cut it. Um, And it's discussed in the classroom somewhat excessively. It's also been a tool to sexualize young children because they've introduced it to young kids who are prepubescent and they have discussed this in the classroom again with my kids and awoken them to matters sexual when they're actually innocent young girls. And again, I don't, I find that very dark. And I know the school teachers, and they're very lovely, but I look at the curriculum, and that's exactly what it's proposing. Um, yeah, I think it's very important that parents know what their children are being taught in this regard, and that they discuss with their schools what they are happy and not happy about their children being exposed to. Parents have to push back on this. It's it's the only way it's going to stop. And I think we, you know, the election gives a really good opportunity for people to do that, to put pressure mm. on political parties. And I, and I look, I've been out of the loop a bit because I was over in the states last week. But haven't um, did Nicola Willis come out with something on the? Not that, not that I noticed because I'd only notice if you had tweeted it. But um, <laughs> I'd say I was off. To, I was very quiet uh, uh, while I was uh, away. There was too many amazing people to talk I to. Know, I know we're going to come to that. time on social media. It's interesting. I, it's interesting about the pushback because I haven't done anything great, and there may be other parents at our local school, the Arrowtown Primary School, but there was no Pride Week this year, whereas last oh, year oh. it was huge. Yeah. It, Last year, my daughter got visited by Inside Out, which for listeners, uh, they should know, this is an extreme fringe group funded by the government to um, support trans people ostensibly in school and to work for inclusion and kindness. And they had two hours with my daughter's class and they discussed being trans right? She was 11 and had two hours of this from teenage they-thems. With, who, are also, who are also telling them that puberty blockers are safe, effective, yes. fully reversible, which yes. is a lie. Even our Ministry of Health have finally removed that statement from their website and they're now looking into, like doing some research about 
whether they should even continue where other countries have pulled them and only using them for clinical trials. So, yeah, but we have these 22-year-olds with no expertise in children who don't give a flying crap about your kids who are going in there and feeding them absolute lies. Yeah, I was mortified about this because for my next daughter, who's more innocent and younger, my oldest daughter can handle it as a laugh, right? But my younger daughter takes everything very, you know, some adults telling her something, it's true. But the school assured me, because uh, I wrote to them, that there'll be no gender ideology uh, this year and no inside-out visiting. Inside-out, of course, have also dropped all the books um, at our local library, which is chock-a-block full with sexual books for six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds. Mm-hmm. I can't let my kids go to the library and just browse the books. I've got to hover over them. And when I say hover over them, these aren't innocent books. These are books that are the whole nine yards um, of explanatory, um, well, I'd call them perversions. Mm. Um, And your kids, you think they're at the library looking at some cute colored books and inside out have been there and deposited um, these books. It's very, very radical. And it seems to me, that the movement is to destroy our ability to think, to think in terms of categories, to think in terms of logic, to think in terms of difference, to destroy the family, to destroy our ability to raise children that are healthy, and that to give ourselves over, I'm going to sound like Patricia Bartlett, her older members will remember, but um, I so admired her for her courage in the old days to give over to perversions and uh, licentiousness. It's like some collapse of the Roman Empire, this 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 no rules approach. But when it comes to women, um, I don't like Andrew Tate. And he's got a lot of followers. And his message to young men, and he's very persuasive, he's hypnotic. His message to young men is to use them, not respect them. Mm. Now, this is where it's heading, right? It's, And this is why what you're doing is so important. Because as it stands at the moment, Boys and men can gain ready access to every female private space in New Zealand. And I mean toilets, changing rooms, sports, hospital wards, prisons. You can probably think of a few more. Rape crisis. Rape crisis. Women's uh, refuge. Yeah. Women's refuge. Yeah. Simply by declaring themselves woman. They can have a full beard and hairy legs and big muscles, and they can go to rape crisis and be supported, be a support person. And if they kick up, they'll be straight before the human rights and they will lose. Mm. Now, this is a magnet for not, 
men who think they're women, this is a magnet for men who have a violent disregard for women and a sexual uh, fetish, like you say, for being in a woman's space. We've right. basically we've basically got government policy that promotes voyeurism and being a pervert, you know, for yes. those that want to, because women can't say no. And we've had instances of it where women have complained about men sitting in their changing rooms and just staring, not doing anything else. And when they complain, they're told that they identify as a woman, just be kind and more tolerant. So we are gaslighting women. We are telling women that their boundaries don't matter, that they have to basically, that their feelings don't matter, that they have to play second fiddle to, to males. It basically is like there was a presentation at the, the summit by a Dr. Dina McMillan who works in Australia and she works with domestic violence victims. And she's done a whole lot of research with both the, the perpetrators and the victims. And she sees what we're, what we're telling young women now in terms of having to ignore all of their boundaries, be quiet, not say a thing. If they do say a thing, that they're the ones that are wrong. You know, they're the ones that are being mean and cruel. We are doing what domestic violence abusers do to their victims. It's that psychological warfare on women that is just happening across the board. It's so very, very deep, and you, you, you've got it now. Why I feel it's so important, and the word gaslighting captures it perfectly because you're a young woman in the changing room, and there's a man sitting there looking at you, aroused. Mm. You are horrified and mortified and scared to the depth of your very being. You go to the counter and say, look, there's a man in there in the woman's changing area staring at me. And they say, you are the problem. Yeah, not only that, you are the problem. And if you speak up about this, I'm going to make your life living hell. There will be consequences for your life. That's what they say. So we had a group of athletes that um, either competed against Leah Thomas, the swimmer that swam yes. in the NCAA champs, or were in Leah's team. And they talked about, like, the the there was two girls there from her team, and they talked about how they, that they were basically told by the athletic department before Leah transitioned over into the female team that this was happening. There was to be no debate. They were not to talk to anyone about it. They were not to post anything about it on social media. They were not to um, discuss it with any media outlets. If they did, their career prospects would be destroyed. Let's go to the conference. Um, I just sort of wanted to explore it a little bit because it's almost, I feel when I get into a deep conversation with anyone, I get onto this and I can feel that I'm too intense about it and I upset them because I see it as so dangerous and I see the trans activist as winning and it's just mortifying to me and it's like, we're walking over this cliff without realizing that we're halfway over. No, no, people can't even see the cliff. Now, tell me about the conference. It was called the International Women's Sports Summit. What was its purpose? 
Um, basically, it was to get together athletes and global experts from around the world to discuss this issue, to talk about all the different components of what was making it up and to try and work together to find solutions, to try and educate, to bring other sports in as well, to try and educate them on what was going on. It was, yeah, it was just bloody brilliant, to be honest. And um, it's just amazing people. What I loved most about it, Rodney, there was a few things, there was lots of things I loved most about it and incredible people, obviously, but there were people from across the political spectrum, like we had far leftist, like radical feminists, conservatives, you name it. Everybody, there was people from across the political spectrum there, but we are all working together on this common cause. And we don't see that very often anymore. You know, everything's so tribal politically that it was just, God, it was nice. It was just so, so good to have. It's an interesting point. It's an interesting point you make because COVID, free speech, and gender ideology are creating a whole new political block that yeah. defies any tribal left or right, national labor, Republican versus Democrat. And I saw a, a Derek, a Professor Derek, his last name escapes me last night, I got sent. And he was speaking out against gender ideology in the same way that you or I would, except, you know, for my money, he was a lot more fluent than I could be. But he was a deep green, right? Mm. Radical deindustrializing green. And he was saying this is a threat to mankind or humankind to the world. Now, you're seeing these these blocks emerge and not necessarily being picked up by what I'd call mainstream politics or mainstream media. You know, I mean, we've just seen the reversal of Keir Starmer, who was the um, Labour leader over in the UK, his reversal on, you know, women are anyone who identifies one, to now saying that women are adult human females and our sex-based rights need protected. He's read the polls, right? You know, I don't I don't believe that he's he ever, he ever has done anything more than say what he thinks are going to get him votes, but... The tide has turned in the UK and, you know, we're seeing that with their sports policies. Now we're seeing that with politicians starting to turn the corner. We're seeing that with um, the gender stuff being taught in schools, their their gender clinics, everything is starting to turn around and hopefully they're going to be able to pull this back before they've gone too far. My concern is in New Zealand, unless enough of us start speaking up and we can't just leave it to the few, right? We know by far the majority of Kiwis agree with us, males, females, across the political spectrum. We know that they agree with us, but if they remain silent, they are part of the problem. The only way we're going to fix this is by everybody starting to get vocal and saying, no, we are not going to let this ideology destroy our kids, destroy our families, destroy our societies. We have got to claw it back. Because it's not just about sport, is it? Oh no, sport is sport is the conduit to connecting people to what the issue is because it's very blatant and people really hate unfairness, right? Mm. And, and people like sport. They like watching sport. It's entertainment. And when you undermine the integrity of that, then you take away that for them. So mm. it's but sport is just one part of a whole bigger problem. I mean, I, I'm much more concerned for our females in prison who are getting raped constantly oh, by men gosh. who identify in there than I am for our female athletes. But I'm still hugely concerned for our female athletes but yeah it's yeah it's can just you fun. imagine you're locked up and we know this has happened in england and scotland oh it's right lo- in california at the moment it's you're locked up in a right. woman's prison with a male rapist or rapist you know your rapist is male 
who's identified as a woman and is locked up with you. Yeah, we're told one one um, the story of one lady who's rapist and who who was sharing a cell with her. Put you know when he had his hand over her mouth, said it would be much easier if you were just quiet. And yeah, just- but they're out of sight, right? Out of sight, out of mind, and so that's why you know sports sports isn't sports is in your face, right? Sports mm-hmm. is everybody's kids play sport. Well, most kids play sport. You know, a lot of adults play sport. Many adults love watching sport. It's a way that we can connect this issue with the public. But it's still really important. You know, we want our young girls to be able to, you know, compete and achieve at the highest level in sport because what sport does for you physically and mentally is so important. Mm. You know, you look at our um, the most successful women in the world, like in business or wherever, many of them have been elite sportswomen. Yes. Gives you that much confidence, that much yeah resilience to be mm. able to deal with issues. I saw on the uh, speaking was, and you mentioned to her, Riley Gaines. Uh, Riley Gaines, yeah. Sorry? Riley Gaines. Gaines. Oh, good, great. Yeah. Riley Gaines. She's a remarkable woman, a remarkable athlete, remarkably brave woman, speaking up for us all, and very articulate. What was her message to the summit? Just that we have to change this, that women are getting gaslit, that we're being told that our feelings don't matter, our fairness doesn't matter, and we have to change that. Share her story with us. So Riley was, she wasn't at Penn State University where Leah Thomas was, but Riley came up against Leah in the NCAA finals race that she was in and ended up finishing. Who's Leah Thomas? Leah Thomas was Will Thomas, who transitioned into female um, swimming at Penn State University in his senior year. And so the girls all knew that when it came up to NCAA finals, they'd all heard that Leah Thomas was going to be competing. There was a lot of discomfort in the changing NCAA? Oh, so NCAA sport is like the college sports over in the US. It's like the best quality sport that you can see really in the US, apart from like the super professional stuff. It's where a lot of Kiwi kids actually go to further their sporting careers. My daughter went over there on a scholarship. Many, I think 53% of our FIFA Women's World Cup team went to college in the US. 83% of our New Zealand women's basketball team have been through the college system in the US and played NCAA sport. It's a really professional level of sport. And Will Thomas, which is a funny name if you think about it, um, given what we're discussing, Will Thomas was a boy swimmer, a male swimmer, and mediocre male swimmer. I shouldn't say that because he, could oh, he was, me. yeah, but he wasn't like, yeah, but he was swimmer. a mediocre male swimmer in the NCAA, yeah. And he yeah. decided he was a woman, you said, in his senior year, is that high school? No, we're college, so they still have, um, gosh, I don't know if I'll get this right, but um, the junior, sophomore, senior. like they So just, how old would he have been when he transitioned? Oh, roughly? so 22, 23. No, jeepers creepers. So he's 22, 23, swimming away. Yeah, six getting foot four. Six foot four. Not, shall we say, effeminate, right? Huge. Six foot four male, 22, 23 year old, 
not making it in college swimming. Well, he isn't. He has got a, you know, he swims for Penn State University in the male team. So, but he's not excelling. He's just mediocre in that NCAA level. Okay. So then tell me the story. What happened? Uh, so he transitioned into the female category. So how did he transition into the female category? He went to his sports department, obviously said that I identify as a female and I want to be included. And so they rolled over backwards to include him and gaslight any woman that didn't like it. <laughs> But why? Everyone in the States is so scared of litigation. You know, it's such a litigating place. You know, we've seen in um, disc golf over there. So that's quite a big sport in the States, yes. disc golf. And there's a male who's identified into the female category and disc golf decided that it was just getting ridiculous. He was winning too much. They thought we, they decided they needed to protect the female category. They did that. He took them to court. The judge sided in Minnesota, this Minnesota court judge sided with this male and basically told Disc Golf that they could not hold their competitions if they did not let him compete. So the judge is even deciding that women don't deserve fair competition. And so what Disc Golf like, have done is they have actually pulled women's competitions from that state well, they're looking at it or reducing them so that there's less incidents of men taking female opportunities but actually he's just stolen them already because they're gone so leah will thomas decides to call himself leah thomas he tells he's 22 he's six foot four he's on the male team at university so he's no slug swimmer and they roll over presumably he has to take some hormone shots or something to get so, his testosterone yeah. down? So I think they had a rule that he had to get his testosterone down to 10 nanomoles per milliliter. But the problem with these rules, Rodney, is that no one ever checks it. No one. So there's no testing going on. Anywhere. So then I am Riley Gaines. My love of my life is my swimming. I have got up every morning since I was probably eight or nine or ten years old, and swum and trained. I have come home from school, and I've gone swimming. It is my life. It is my ambition to be the world number one swimmer and go to the Olympics. I'm such an amazing athlete that I get a scholarship to go to Penn State University Oh no, she, Riley didn't. She went to, because I can't remember which one oh, she was. But she wasn't. She so Riley had to race against Leah, Paula Scanlon, and she was another girl as well. Kylie Allons, who they spoke at the um the summit. They were actually in Leah's team. Okay. I got it. So I spend all my life for this moment. And a six foot four man takes maybe some shots, calls himself Leah, and I'm done. He's Yeah, so Leah was still attracted to women, still fully intact, getting changed. The girls were all told that Leah would be using their changing rooms. It takes, like, I don't know if anyone knows much about professional swimming suits, right? But when you warm up, you have a suit because you don't want to use your really good one because they don't last that long. But when you get into your racing suit, it can take girls up to 40 minutes 
in that time, they are pretty much naked, trying to jiggle themselves into their costume. Like it's there is no privacy there whatsoever. And they've been told that the six foot fully intact male who's still attracted to females is allowed to be in their space with them while they're doing that. And if they have any concerns about that, they're being bigoted. They just need to be quiet and not say anything to the point where one of his teammates used to get changed in the janitor's cupboard in a dark little janitor's cupboard with like buckets and crap everywhere because she was so frightened of him in her space. But then Leah turns up to the NCAA finals, wins a final. There's not much happiness about um, him winning one of those finals. Gets into the final with Riley Gaines. And he, when you look at his split times, he slows himself down because he realizes that if he wins another one, it's not a good look. So he draws with Riley Gaines. When they get on the podium, guess who gets the, the medal? No way. They gave it to Leah Thomas. They told Riley they would post one out to her. But for, for the purposes of today, Leah was the one that was going to be photographed and given the medals. The medal. Yeah. And then Penn State University had the audacity to nominate Leah Thomas for NCAA Female Sportswoman of the Year. Just a really sucker punch it to the female athletes. It's humiliation upon humiliation upon humiliation. Yeah. I had no idea about the 40-minute swimsuits. Yeah, the racing suits, they are really, I mean, you want them to help you go fast, right? Yes, so they I guess. are super tight, fishing, like, yeah, they are it's like pulling on hard. a wetsuit that's yeah. tight. Yeah. And, and so you can't just sort of hop you around the court. You can't hide behind anything or put a towel around you while you're getting changed. That You need both hands to be helping you, you know, manoeuvre yourself into it. Jumping around, you know, like it's so how how this is I just can't. It's like COVID, it's like climate change, it's like everything, free speech. I can't understand how the entire Penn State University administration, sports administrators, college sports, media, politicians, what has gotten into them? Yeah to think fear, in fear any way, shape, or form that that is acceptable. Yeah, so fear has got into them, right? We're in, what are they it scared started, of? It all started with, I believe, the manipulation of language. And like when I, I did a presentation at the summit on basically why language is important and why we've got to take it back. And I started with a quote from Goebbels, you know, Joseph Goebbels, who was in the Nazi German government said, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. And there is actually research that shows that it doesn't actually matter whether the lie is true or false. It's all about the repetition. And this is what we're doing with kids now. We're indoctrinating them with all of these lies. And so they believe it. But then when you ever see them challenged and ask questions about the lie that they've been told, they have no argument for it because there's no basis for it in reality. It's just a big fat lie. But they honestly believe it. And we either have these sporting leaders and academic leaders believing it or pretending to believe it because the fear of not believing it is too great. And that fear of not believing it being too great is only there because enough people are not speaking up. When we get enough pushback, I firmly believe that will change. It's the destruction of women and women's sport. It's also the destruction of men. 
It is. Because any man who's a man would go to the end of the earth to protect Riley Gaines and her, for one of her, I'm using a lot of old-fashioned terms because that's how I feel, her modesty. Mm. There's no way, there's no way that any self-respecting man or boy would allow a young woman, any woman, to be so traduced. And yet here they are. Yeah. And then they're speaking to her and telling her to suck it up and smile for the camera. Yeah. It is evil beyond evil, and it's being repeated in New Zealand sports and New Zealand schools up and down the country as we speak. True? Yep, as I understand, yep. No, I know. I know it's happening in my school. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what were the great, what was the great takeouts for you in this, what you learned? Not, not that you're inspired and you're up for the fight and all oh, the God, I had so many takeouts. God, I've got a massive list I'm working on. One of them was what not. What did you learn? Yeah, what I learned was that we cannot give away our language anymore. You know, I'm going to talk when I talk about language now and I talk about the whole trans thing, I'm going to call males males. I don't care how they identify. I'm going to call them males. Where we've gone wrong before is we tried to be too kind and we thought, you know, we wanted to have a, a good debate and try to reach a consensus. And so we thought we were kind by saying, calling men who identify as women, we were calling them trans women. We can't, that if we call them trans, if you say trans women shouldn't play women's sport, then you have a problem because you're saying that they're women. Why can't women play women's sport? But if you say males can't play women's sport, well, it's bloody obvious they shouldn't be able to play it, right? Mm -hmm. But we've, we have been guilty and added to this problem by using their language. So the biggest thing I took out, one of the biggest things was we need to capture our language back. And I'm no longer going to sanitize my press releases for the media to try and get them to print them because they don't anyway. So I'm just going to keep sending them out, calling males, males. And even if they never get printed, the journalists will see them and they will know that I'm right. And every time they don't print them, I'm sure they'll feel guilty. It will get through. So that was one of the big things. That The other is that we've got to stop, like I'm, I'm reassessing our name, actually. I know this sounds silly, but save women's sport. I don't want to be a victim. I don't want women to be victims. Like we need to take back the power and the fight and go on the offensive and not be defensive. So whether we need a different name, if anyone out there has a great empowering name that, you know, empowers women in sport, but also empowers, empowers people that we can rebrand ourselves to. I haven't even talked to this to my team about this. We've got a meeting in the next couple of days to like for me to download. Yeah, so much stuff. I had some real positives as well. So um, Triathlon New Zealand sent over a representative. Wow. Because they're reassessing their policy. And she was absolutely great. But watching the awakening as the conference, the three days went on, was just so good to see. Because, you know, I think that she'd come from, she's very liberal and she'd come from this, the, the argument, looking at both sides and thinking that they'd come to a nice consensus. After the first day, I think she was quite mind blown and she said, no, I've, I'm rewriting our policy. I'm already contacted the CEO. 
after the second day, she was like, you know, we're debating whether we just protect the elite category or whether we need to protect community level as well. And her CEO had said, no, I think inclusion at community level is more important. By the third day, she was like, no, we have to have we have to protect fairness for females at all levels. So I'm really excited to see where their policy comes because that could just be one that might start a domino effect here. Um, yeah, God, there was just, there was so much. Keep Network- going, I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, just meeting all of the people that I've been networking with online for years and years, actually being able to meet with them and have really good, strong conversations. You know, I met with Ross Tucker, who's the world rugby sports scientist, and he told me about new um, research that's coming out that will mean New Zealand rugby will not be able to ignore the increased risk of injury they're going to put on female players with the South ID policy that they've now been consulting on for, gosh, is it coming up two years now? Because they know it's wrong, right? But they're too mm. gutless to pull it back because of the activists. So hopefully this new research coming out will stop that. Yeah, gosh, there's so much. <laughs> Where do you think this has come from? What's driving it? Was there any discussion of that? Oh, yeah, there was. You know, it all started, we had so many good presentations, and I'd recommend anyone that wants to go and watch the presentations. They're all available online. If you just go to iconswoman.com, so it's I-C-O-N-S, woman.com, then they've got day one, day two, day three with all the speeches. And, like, I'm happy to send some recommendations through. There was There's a few that I highly recommend, like the psychological. Icons, I-C-O-N-S.com. Great. Now, I C O N S woman. So, oh, woman. Yeah. Got dot it. com. Got it. Woman A E N. E N. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Many. I'm um, like, you know, sports scientists, biologists, um, yeah, physiologists. Oh, so like, where yeah. did it come from? Icons? No. The, the summit? Oh, the problem. Gender ideology. Oh, right. Oh, well, in sport, it started with the IOC. So that's where we focused on gender ideology. Gosh, that's that's a whole nother thing. I'm I don't know. <laughs> I would be guessing. But with the sports stuff, it was definitely the IOC that started the problem off. Like, you know, I think it was 2003, they decided that men had sex change operations that they could compete in the female category. Most didn't until their late 40s, 50s, so they were never going to be elite athletes, so it never impacted sport. But in 2015, based on one flawed research study, they opened up the female category to men, basically treating women as just men with lower testosterone, which is so wrong. And that opened the gate to this flood of males in sports that we are seeing across the board in female sport now. And I think in in you know the UK, there's something something like 50 men playing female football there's literally the number of male cyclists competing in female cycling now must be in the hundreds it's just growing exponentially because it gives a way for mediocre males to have power over women and to succeed at something in life Mm. it's funny this where it comes from because i just while you were talking i was thinking i've had online and i followed all of this I had Trevor Loudon, and he explained the Marxists were big into the destruction of the family, and these Marxists and neo-Marxists were discussing it. I've had our co-host Marie Buskey on, and she's explained it as all this postmodernism 
and um, you know, language and victim and power. And then I had a wonderful guy called Ashley Church on, and he pointed me in the direction of a book that I've just finished called um by Jonathan Kahn called The Return of the Gods. And it's an astonishing book because it talks about the pagan gods, and there was pagan gods who were could make you change your sex and would do so for venal reasons. And his view is that with the loss of Christianity, these pagan gods have returned. And I was never sure whether it was psychological or supernatural. And at the Stonewall protest in 1969, this god appeared that that caused this riot and affected our minds and made for a madness. And I've got these three things bubbling away there, but to me, it's sort of like this, it's a collective insanity. And I do think I th- that there's an element of truth in all of those. But Yes, that's what I feel. The, going back to the religion, I think that a big problem, like I'm not religious, right, but I do believe that a big problem that we have is that as a humanity, we need something to believe in. And the less strength that the religion has had, the, you know, the less popular it's become, the more humanity has clung on to these other, like created other religions. And trans ideology is a religion. It's a religious cult. It's got it all the elements. It has. It's all the elements because you believe in it. It can't be questioned. You have to be pure. You have to drive out the heretics. You have to be violent towards them. And I mean, and it's transformative. And and there's this idealism of this ideal world. And it's got all the elements. You see it the same in environmentalism where you take a good idea, mm. which is let's care for the planet. <laughs> and you turn it into this quasi or religious religion, cult. <laughs> yeah. Religious cult. And it's the world is boiling. Yeah. And you say to yourself, look, I'm I I don't mind, you know, I understand that you could be gay and you can get on and and, and live your life. And then the next minute you're in this whole different world um where it's no longer a, a discussion. Um it's Truly extraordinary. And I've never understood why these corporations, you know, Budweiser famously here in New Zealand, we've got Spark. Um, I could never understand why Posey Parker, who had a very, very modest speech to give, uh, could attract such outrage. And that outrage would be joined by the media and our politicians. And um, the police sided with the outrage. Um it's an extraordinary achievement. And I think you're right about the language because once you accept the concept of a trans woman, like a third sex, like Georgina Byer, you know, I'm cool, you know, yeah, I know she grew up a boy, but now she's a woman and we'll call her a trans woman. We never called her a woman. We called her a trans woman. But as soon as you accepted the concept of a trans woman, you say, oh, dear, I never thought about this. Which toilet does she go to? Oh, which changing sheds does she go to? Oh, what sport could she play in? As soon as you accept the trans woman, you've gone away from the binary. Yeah. And and for the integrity of sport, marriage, family, child rearing, 
The binary is at the essence. And we've also been taught to live in a world that doesn't like black and white. That is to say a hard definition, male, female, full stop. Mm. Um, was there an anger at the summit? There was frustration, but no, there was, I think we did, we had an international panel on the morning of the last day, and I think everyone was quite shocked at how bad New Zealand and Australia are. You know, I, I made the analogy, I feel like we're on a race to a raising woman between like New Zealand, Australia and Canada, and I don't know who's going to get there first, but I think actually Australia might slightly beat us, and we wow. both beat Canada. Wow. Yeah, Australia well, is quite misogynistic in terms of how little they care about women's rights. I mean, what our government done has done here has been bad enough, but in Australia they literally do not care. So the issue there is we've had Jacinda Ardern and her lot, which is shocking on all of this stuff, obviously. So you'd think we'd be the worst. But over in Australia, they're bad because the men aren't interested. Yeah, the men just don't care about women's sport. You know, Karen Perkins, who leads the Australian Institute of Sport, has just released these guidelines for elite sport now, basically saying that people can self-ID into elite sport. Some sports might want to do, you know, taking the testosterone down to 10 nanomoles per milliliter, which is, there is nothing, there's like 18 peer review studies that show that no matter how much you reduce testosterone, it does not negate male performance advantage it it is retained but he's ignored all that and he put out these new guidelines for all sports for elite and basically said that um if any female athletes had concerns they could come and see him but you know he could guarantee that no females would be affected by this females are already being affected by it why wouldn't you talk to female athletes before you put the policy out but he just does not care so yeah and i've Detected this, detected in your tweets, you've hit me over the head with your tweets on this, <laughs> that there's a strong element, that's even too soft for what you're saying, of, I can't say the word, misogyny. Misogyny. Misogyny, yeah. i.e. men hating on women, men not supporting women, men potentially looking the other way when violence is perpetrated against women, a very deep and dark part of a bad male psyche is in the mix too. Yeah, look, my counterpart, Catherine Deves, who is in Australia, she was in um, in the state or one of the state um, parliaments talking to a MP and she was told by one of the head bureaucrats that like when raising this issue on sport that literally a, a female athlete would have to be severely disabled or die before anyone was going to change their minds about anything. It's incomprehensible to me. Um, I found the police behaviour around I say Posse Parker because her real name is double-barreled twice. Kelly, Kelly J. J. Keene. Kelly J. Keene Kelly yeah. J. Keene will do. Kelly J. Keene, I'd love to use her real name. Kelly J. Keene. I am so, what's the word, programmed by my upbringing and my belief 
in sort of Prince Charming and being a knight that I would literally lay down my life without hesitation or risk serious injury to put myself between a young thug and a woman or a girl. I could not stop myself. And I have done this at times when I was younger. And I think that I, I know I would still do it and get the literally crap beaten out of me because I'm programmed to protect women. And the idea, if there were 10 men attacking a woman, I would insert myself and I wouldn't be able to help. All I'd do is get hurt, but I couldn't let it pass. It's beyond reasoning to me. And yet, we had policemen, and I use the word men, standing around, shuffling their feet, while elderly women were beaten by young men. Yeah, and I'll never look at the police in the same way again. Never. You know, that, that has had a profound effect on me. Now when I see a police car go past, rather than feeling respect for them, which I always did before that event, now I look at them and I feel sick in my stomach. But what is it about men, right? Like, what has happened to a policeman? What has happened to men? What has happened to boys? Like, you'd do anything. And again, this is why it's not just an attack on women. It's an attack on manhood. It is. Yeah. Basically, they're attacking you by saying, look what we can do to your wives, your daughters, your your mothers while you stand back and do nothing look what you will let us do that is how weak and how pathetic you are no they are they are ridiculing men they yeah they're mocking you they're mocking the ones that stand back and say and say nothing because it's it's all about the power right like if we can do this to your woman and you do nothing what can we do to you so you're a, are you a turf Whatever that is. Yeah. Tired of explaining reality to F wits. Yep, definitely. Yeah. I'll I'll take that one. <laughs> but that's that's the phrase used against someone who thinks that men should be excluded from women's private places. You're a turf. So you forgot you forgot to add the extra bit that goes with that now, a turf far right Nazi. Okay. Don't, don't forget right that. Because <laughs> otherwise there's no excuse to bash me or you know. And the poll, the poll that you got, I mean that's a majority of us. Yeah. So Chanel Lau tweets that turf should be banned from Threads, which was the Facebook, Twitter, which thankfully sunk beneath the sea, go Elon. He tweets that people that think like you and I and our listeners should be banned from threads. Oh, look, 
I wouldn't actually worry about what Chanel tweets. He's no, a very lonely, very lonely man. But I he's not. I think because Spark mm. immediately tweets and support. That was the disappointment. They hadn't. They they were never asked for comment, but they felt compelled to support him to virtue signal their wokeness over social media. Yeah. Completely well, ignoring. Then the every other one Vodafone called One New Zealand or something now, goodness knows what, two degrees, all pipe up and in unison say that they are into diversity, kindness, inclusion, all the rest of it. And yet sitting on top of those organizations are clever people at a management level and at a board level, there are women who allow women to be treated like Ricky Gaines would be treated. They're supporting that. Mm-hmm. They're supporting Chanel Lowell's call for violence with young thugs bashing grandmothers. There are men in Spark on the board and in the senior manager who are supporting this. They only respond when people like me, customers, say, explain yourself. And they give a weak need apology along the lines of a politician saying, oh, I might have misspoke and what I really meant was. But didn't address the issue that you're either for this or against it. You can't be sitting in the room and saying, look, I'm all for the uh, gender ideology trans activists and I'm all for women, you know, let's all get along, because actually it's mutually exclusive. You have to decide you're on one side or the other. Either men can access women's sport, women's spaces, or they can't. You can't have a bob each way on this one, can you? No, you can't. Chanel Lau, yeah, sad case, obviously. But you and I can't put a tweet out and have Spark run to our support and never back off, have the government get behind us in terms of violence against um, women, the media behind us, and have access through Inside Out to our schools. And he calls himself marginalised. He's got more power than any other man I know around New Zealand at the moment. Like, what the hell has Chanel Lau got? You know? how? Well, that's why I'm struggling to understand why men and women in a position of authority are not standing up for... I keep going back to fear. What are they scared of? They're scared of the pushback from activists. Because the activists, they, they are very, very well organized, very vocal. They know how to make a noise. And because they know that they, anyone that speaks up, they shut them down or they they do not let them speak. So like Posey Parker, Kelly J. Keane, they didn't want any woman to speak there because otherwise our voices might have been heard and they can't have that because then people might wake up to what's going on. And so their only tactic is fear to shut down any debate to silence any dissenters. And so nobody gets the confidence to speak up. And and, and you have these corporates just kowtowing to them. 
But it's that the corporates are no different than any other one of us who who remains silent on this, who doesn't say to their kids when their kids say, oh, if you say that you're being a transphobe or you're being bigoted, parents need to push back and say, no, I'm not. I'm being honest. So everybody needs to find that courage within them because the It'll, it will grow and evolve. And we're seeing that in the UK. The more people that have the confidence to speak out, you're starting to see the narrative mm. change, the tide turn. You're seeing it with politicians, with the media, with policies. So it is possible, but it's only possible if we find our voices. The psychological uh, uh, manipulation is extraordinary. I watched the, I don't know, Senate or Congress hearing of the young, is it Coco? This is the detransitioner? Yes. Yes. Um, I can't think of a name. It does start with C, though. Yeah, she's and amazing. It was heartbreaking, wasn't it? Absolutely heartbreaking. Little confused going into puberty, like who isn't. Picked up on by experts and said, oh, what was she told? That she should be a boy. Chloe Cole. Drugs, Chloe Cole. Drugs, yeah. mastectomy at 15. Her parents were told by the experts, what would you rather? A dead daughter or a live trans son? And that was a lie. I mean, with the parents are still being told that in New Zealand now. It's a complete lie. These kids are at no more risk of suicide than any other kid that is struggling mentally. You know, if you're if you're struggling with a mental illness, yes, it does increase your risks. And God, we want to help kids that that are. But but if not validating your child's pretend identity doesn't put them at any more risk than they already are at. But again, I struggle, and I know you don't have an answer, right? But this is driving me insane. It's like the COVID experience all over again, but much more intense. Well, this one's attacking our kids. This one is targeting our kids. How can a medical doctor, a medical profession, expert counsellors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, tell a little confused girl that, yeah, you're a little bit upset, what you need to do is shoot your body through of, through with hormones and we'll cut your breasts off and you'll be better. <laughs> I mean, that's insanity. Mm, I remember listening to one detransitioner and she said that she woke up when she realised that they were telling her in order to be a man, she had to have her uterus removed. And she thought to herself, well, only women have a uterus, so men don't have to be have a uterus removed to be men. So I'm still not going to be a man. Like it just it finally clicked to her that what they were telling her that she should do to validate her identity was complete nonsense. Only women have uteruses. Whether you remove them or not, it's still only a thing a woman can have. Isn't that amazing that she could see that mm. when this whole um, thing is, and of course, it's it's the blurring, as you say, of language, where you can have a trans woman rather than a male and a female, 
and we all know that there's only male or female, and they pick on the intersex, which is, you know, probably one in zillion, and is a genetic um, mutation, um, as though that gets around the hook of the binary. And yet here it is being presented in our girls' sport, our women's sports, in our prisons, in our hospitals, in our use of pronouns, everywhere you look um, and presented to my kids as fact. They can. My oldest one can see through it instantly. My, my 10-year-old doesn't even understand. She just knows there are boys and girls. She likes princesses and princesses and the old Barbie and the old Ken, right? That's where she's at. She's a 10-year-old girl, for God's sake, and they're trying to tell her that, oh, well, you want to check out because amongst this class, you know, some of you will be in the wrong sex as though that's even a thing, that you were born in the wrong sex. Oh, but the sad thing is too, Rodney, they've made it really uncool just to be straight now, right? Like, oh, yeah. Straight, like oh, you're, yeah. You're not, you're not an identity. You're nothing. Oh, yeah. Straight. And we can't celebrate you if you're straight. But if you're yeah. anything else, including a furry, we'll celebrate you. <laughs> well, and uh, my daughter's friend who's, quote, gay at 12, I asked her about that. I said, how do you think that works? And she said, oh, she's getting bullied and no one would help her. But once she said she was gay, couldn't she couldn't be bullied. Mm. Well, Ro, <laughs> we discussed the summit. Are you optimistic for the future? I am, actually. I am. I've got to be. Got to be optimistic. I, I think that we are seeing pushback. I think we will get there a lot quicker in New Zealand if people find their voices, but we will get there. And in terms of finding voices, like I just want to um, do a shout out for that let, the next Let Women Speak event. So Kelly J. Keane is coming back to New Zealand because the ask that threw the tomato sauce like, and assaulted her is um, going to be in court on the 20th of September up in Auckland. And so they're doing another event. And I just want to say to people, look, we need men and women there. We need people to show in numbers that they care enough about this, what's happening to women, to actually stand up and speak out about it. It will just be there in support. So there's a website, standingforwomen.com, that they can go to. And if they look up Let Women Speak NZ Justice, would be really good it's a Wednesday this time I know it's not as easy to get to but if you can be there I think it's going to be on the steps of the courts I'm not sure we'll finalize that those details will be out but so yeah, that's in Auckland yeah it's in Auckland it's like a month before Wednesday the, the 20th of September oh man yeah. that's going so, this is going so, to be the biggest event ever yeah so we need if we want to put this issue what's happening to our, our you know our, our mothers our wives our daughters if we want to put this issue and us and the men, yep, and men as well. If we want to get it spotlighted for the election, this is the perfect opportunity to do it. So what's the webpage again? It's standingforwomen.com. And then if you just they, they should have a search for let women speak NZ Justice on And there. of course I realized because they were trying to stop Jelly Kelly J. Keene from coming, but she will be on a visa that she originally had that'll give her a length of time. So she doesn't have to apply presumably for a new visa. She's automatically in on her old visa. Yeah. And um, this could, I think her arrival in New Zealand shook New Zealand awake. It does. Yeah. This, this, her coming again will be seismic 
It will. So there's an events tab on the website. Just click on that on the events page and you'll see it there. But yeah, it does. It has the the ability to really change the conversation. And we only get this chance once every three years. And if we don't make a noise now before the election and put this issue firmly in front of the politicians, something we all care about, this is the perfect the perfect opportunity to do it. So, what does Chris Hipkins do? I don't know. You've seen him backtrack on so much. I don't know. Well, I don't. I actually don't think Chris Hipkins is going to outlast. Once the election's over and he loses, he'll be booted, and someone like David Parker will come in so that they can continue yeah. their agenda. Because they sort of got it. You got to say, don't you? He's got to say to win the election or have a chance of it. He's got to say, I defend free speech a hundred percent. And the police will be there to preserve free speech and keep public order and keep the two groups separate. And by the way, uh, a woman is an adult human female. <laughs> well, he, he, struggle, he struggles with that one. So. Uh, but mind you, so did Keir Starmer, the, the Labour Yeah, But the that's going to put it, that's going to put it literally front and centre of the election. The attitude to woman and free speech. Oh, my goodness. Well done. Well, she's a brave woman. She's a wonderful woman. Um, How she keeps standing up against the unfairness of the legacy media's abuse of her, of the idea that somehow she's a Nazi. It's the most scurrilous, nasty, laziest, malevolent attack on a woman just wanting to speak her truth. I can't believe it. Um, I, 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 I can't believe it. And that she's still standing up and prepared to come back. That is, that is suffragette level. This is bigger. Oh, this is suffragette level. She is level. a legend. An absolute yeah. legend. Yeah. Oh, God, I admire her. Well, good for you. That's the webpage. We've been talking to Row Edge. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I'm sorry I get exercised on this. <laughs> I, I, I'm so bewildered by it. I'm so heartbroken by it. I'm so fearful of it. I have seen it with my kids. It has driven me to distraction. I don't know how to respond to it because every time I raise it, people just think, oh, he's an old dinosaur, you know. He doesn't understand um, and doesn't know how to be inclusive. I feel as I'm an old man yelling at clouds. And it's so wonderful to have Roe Edge and Kelly J. Keane, these young women, prepared to stand up and take a heap of abuse and to show us all that we need to find our brave and stand up with them. And we have an opportunity in Auckland on the 20th of September, and that'll be history. There's no doubt about that. Love to see as many people there as possible. That'll be history. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. Please, you can send us a text at 2057. Send us an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Uh, you know the webpage to go to. You can um, follow Row Edge on Twitter. I highly recommend that. Um, I love her tweets, and they keep me informed not just about uh, 
gender ideology, but a whole lot of things like, you know, free speech, climate change that I learned through her. She's like my news curator. So <laughs> I've fallen down so time. many rabbit holes, haven't I? <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'll, anyone you want to jump in, I'll jump in right beside you. <laughs> I so. Okay, thank you, Ro. Thank you, Rodney. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text to 2057 and email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We love hearing from you. Uh, we've got one of my old-time favourites uh, coming up to talk to us, Dr. Don Bresh. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Rodney. Well, I got you on to talk about inflation, and then I added in GST, and I got a few more things to add. But first of all, whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? I'm in Tauranga at the moment. I was in Christchurch a couple of days ago, and I'll be in Auckland mm. next week, but I'm in Tauranga right now. How do you love Tauranga? Because you're living there. Uh, I'm liking it a lot. It's a much smaller city, of course, than Auckland. Yes. Easier to get around, and uh, climate is marginally, well, hard to tell. <laughs> Some days it's uh, pretty crappy, but uh, today it's not too, well, today is pretty crappy, actually, but nothing like as bad as you've had it in the South Island. Well, can I tell you, I'm looking out my window now, and it's snowing, and it snowed all night, and um, it looks like when we were kids, one of those things you'd pick up and shake, you know, those those little round balls, and all the snow would come. And for some reason, to a Kiwi, because we don't get a lot of snow, uh, when it's snowing, it just looks delightful, right? Magic. <laughs> and it's not enough It's not enough that you have to sh- uh, shovel or anything. It's a couple of inches. But the kids are all excited because um, there's been a shortage of snow uh, in the mountain. I suspect there'll be a surfeit of snow uh, now. So that that's the weather done, Don. Now. I'm going to hit you with something. (laughs) You must have been putting your Hobson's Pledge hat on. It must have been with mixed emotion that you said goodbye to the wonderful, gorgeous Casey Costello. Uh, Yes, indeed, it was. Casey Costello has been enormously helpful to Hobson's Pledge since we began. We started in 2016, and Casey was there from the very start. And... uh, Casey has been an absolute rock of Hobson's Pledge, committed to one law for everybody. She is, of course, part Napoi, part Maori, but uh, she believes strongly that all New Zealanders, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their ancestry, should be treated equally. And uh, if she makes it to Parliament, she'll certainly be pushing that line very strongly. She's a tough lady. She is indeed. Well, um, I know you. And I know you would have encouraged her, even at your cost, in terms of Hobson's pledge. Yeah, I encouraged her if she was guaranteed a top six position, because there's no earthly point in her standing for a party which may not make 5%. Um, 
if it doesn't make 5%, of course, she is not in. Mm. Uh, if it makes 5% and she's ranked at number eight or nine, she's still not in. So I said, for goodness sake, don't accept that invitation unless you can be guaranteed a top six position. Did you get the guarantee? That I don't know. I doubt it. If we know anything about Mr. Peters, um, it will not be any guarantee. And so um, I've got to tell you something, Don. I'm sort of ashamed to admit this. Man, if she was in the top six, I might take myself to the ballot box, which would be a shocking thing in of itself. And I might tick New Zealand First's box, which would be the most horrific thing I could imagine a year ago doing. But I'd do anything to get Casey Costello into Parliament. Yeah, I I, I don't plan to vote New Zealand First myself, I must say. Um, you mentioned that at one point you might talk this morning about GST off principles. <laughs> I mean, Winston Peters wants to take GST off all food, which is just oh. nuts. Um, well, so... There's so much about New Zealand First that I don't like. I do admire the fact that Winston has consistently been an advocate for uh, equality before the law. That's been one of his abiding principles, and he's stuck by that through hell and high water. Saying it. Sorry? He says it. Yeah. He doesn't. I I mean, actually, I I think he actually, in the 2017-2020 coalition government, he actually delivered some of that for that principle. For example, uh, the Labour government wanted, the Labour coalition government wanted to uh, put appointed uh, 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 people on the Canterbury Regional Council and Winston blocked that. Mm. Uh, Now, of course, they put it through in the last term when New Zealand First was not there. uh, I think Labour wanted to entrench Maori electorates Mm. And Winston prevented that happening. So there's several things he did which were consistent with his principles on on equality, but uh, I admit he didn't get nearly as much done as I would like to have seen. It's a funny thing, isn't it, that um, we've been in such a disruptive time that here I am bordering on uh, becoming a Christian and thinking of voting New Zealand first. I mean, um, if you'd said any of that to me two years ago, I would have said you're certifiable, and yet here we are <laughs> because we are living in a topsy-turvy world. And um, But good on you. Are you looking for a replacement for Casey Costello? Uh, not at this stage. I mean, the moment I would, I'll be fronting all the Hobson's Bridge stuff mm-hmm. to the election, if Casey did not get elected, we would great, gladly welcome her back. Of Absolutely. Course. Absolutely. Yeah. What, a, what a wonderful woman. Hopefully, um, let me say that hopefully, of course, if uh, there's a national act government where act is a significant block of votes, uh, act is pushing a one law for all line very strongly also. Mm. Um, so hopefully. Well, my big appeal to New Zealand first is Casey Costello. And if Winston, I know I, I wouldn't trust him ever, but um, I have said I'm a single issue voter in the sense that I want a proper inquiry into the vaccine injured. And all I know is that there are people who are vaccine injured. There are people that the vaccine has killed, and that's medically established by the authorities. And it's all put your hand in your ears and go la di la di la If you look at what some serious people are saying here and overseas, 
and common sense experience of friends and loved ones, there are people who are injured and there are people who have died and they can't get ACC, the injured ones, they can't get help. They get told by the doctor that they're nutty. Some of these are my friends. And they're not. I've interviewed people and they're not. I've met them and they're not. And because it's political dynamite, the media and our institutions and our politics have turned their back on these injured people. And the one thing, that's my vote. My vote is for a health select committee inquiry simply into the extent and what we can establish of these injuries and to allow the vaccine injured to come to Parliament and explain what's happened to them. Mm -hmm. And Winston's the only one of the party at this stage looking like he could get in that's saying he would do that. Oh, man, you imagine... Think of this, Don, and not only because we got onto this, but if there were 30 people in New Zealand severely injured by something that the government told you that you had to do, there'd be a massive inquiry. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I don't think anyone doubts it's more than 30. I don't have a feel for the numbers at all. But you know it's some, right? I assume it's some. I don't. I, yeah. Honestly, it's not an issue I followed very closely, to be to be honest. Yeah. Well, I'm trouble is I'm um, head over heels in it because it's I have such a sense of outrage over it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's, of course, for many cases it's hard, um, but overseas uh, there's a lot more work being done. And um, anyway, so that's why. I am persuaded uh, by Mr. Peters, even though I don't, I wouldn't trust him as far as I could pick him up and and have him over a cliff that was a thousand feet high in the ocean waves. But Casey Costello, oh my goodness, she is one um, impressive lady, and you have done a great job um, in encouraging her. So thank you for that, Don, for on behalf of us all. Now, tell us this. The economy was all going great guns, we were told. And, oh, my goodness, we got through COVID and the lockdowns, and we were awash. We felt rich. Then it starts to grind its gears, and things start getting tough. Oh, and you go to the supermarket, and everything starts getting expensive. Can't find any bloody eggs. Um, The shelves occasionally are bare. I had about three weeks before I could get... um, it sounds a third world, a first world problem, doesn't it? Before I could get lunch wrap, uh, no shops had lunch wrap for some weeks. Anyway, prices are shooting up. You're hurting it, and just when you're struggling, the Reserve Bank comes along and jams up interest rates to make you suffer even more. And businesses hurt. And an ordinary person looking at this, you're thinking. This is crazy. Right when we need some help, you're kicking us in the guts. And then you have a Reserve Bank governor telling us that it's for our own good. Now, walk me through that. (laughs) Rodney, you're asking me 
okay, I was Reserve Bank Governor, and I'm going to answer your question. But you, of course, were a lecturer in economics and understand the issues at least as well as I do. But I'll, I'll try and explain it <laughs> in my words. I mean, you say everyone was hurt. In fact, there were lots of people who benefited from increasing interest rates. All the people the money in the bank on deposit suddenly saw their deposit rates go from minor, uh, less than one to three, four, five, six. So they were a beneficiary of that. Yes, there were people hurt and hurt badly. And it's one of the issues which troubles me greatly that using monetary policy to, to affect the inflation rate has a differential impact on people. Some people are severely impacted negatively, others benefit. And there was an article in the Herald, what, a month or so back, raising that very question. And I'm troubled by it too. I'm not quite sure how you avoid that. But, I mean, uh, over long periods of time, we've begun to understand that inflation is bad news. Changing prices uh, across the board hurts people. Uh, now, that's not everybody. Again, it benefits some people. The people who, for argument's sake, bought property and just sat on it for 10 years or 20 years suddenly find themselves as millionaires, especially if they borrowed money to buy the, the property. Mm. And many New Zealanders benefited enormously from the fact that the property market exploded with general inflation. But others were, were disadvantaged. I mean, I've, I've told the story many times. I may have told it even to you. In 1971, I bought a house on the north shore of Auckland, beautiful home overlooking the sea, five bedrooms, three bathrooms, et cetera, for $43,000. Oh, my goodness. Which was about three times my substantial salary at that point of 14000 My uncle... So $14,000 for a salary in 1971 was a lot of money. For the chief executive of an investment bank, my my secretary I think was getting two and a half thousand, so fourteen thousand, uh, and the house was three times that. Uh, at the same year, by chance, my uncle, who had been uh, growing apples in the Nelson region, sold his orchard when he retired from orcharding, and being a cautious and conservative kind of guy, he invested the proceeds of the, that sale in eighteen year government bonds at 5.4% interest. Perhaps fortunately for him, when he when those bonds matured, he was dead. But the $30,000 for which he sold his orchard in 1971, at that point would have bought him 11 Toyota Corolla cars. By the time those bonds matured in 1988, uh, 1989, 18-year bonds, they would have bought him one Toyota Corolla in a small amount of change. He was robbed. He was robbed. Of, right. I can't think of the number, 17, 18 cars. That's right. And uh, they had his money. They had his money. And that's the point I'm making. Inflation and benefits some people and yeah. screws other people. And he was the prudent one. Yeah, he was. that's right. He was the guy th thinking he was being safe and cautious and, and lost most of the proceeds of his life's work. Not only that, he was investing in New Zealand in the sense yep. by saving his money. I think you and I will both agree that when you buy a house from a government's perspective, it's consumption, not investment. It doesn't add to our output in the sense of productivity. You bought your house for how much again, Don? 43000 What would it be worth now? Uh, well, 
My wife and I separated in the late 1980s. At that point, it was worth about 1.5 million. It's probably worth two and a half or three million now. Yeah, I think you're light on that too. That yeah. was the case. Yeah. And of course, it's totally unproductive behavior. That's right. That's right. And that and that's how inflation it favors unproductive behavior and penalizes productive behavior, which is working, saving, and investing. So your uncle worked, he saved, and he invested. He invested in particular in government bonds. So all of that was what you want more of to have a productive economy. Someone buying a house and sitting on it, while it personally enriches them, at the end of it, the economy still just got the house. That's right. Exactly. So uh, there's a fairly wide consensus that inflation itself is damaging, and it's not only damaging economically, but it it uh, differentially affects, I mean, it affects people in different ways. Some people have benefited hugely, and some people are strongly disadvantaged, screwed up. I would have kind of, kind of used the word, but that's probably a bit impolite on this program. But it, it doesn't affect everybody in the same way. So the general, I think, consensus across many countries now is the best way of running an economy is to have minimal inflation. Mm -hmm. When the Reserve Bank Act was amended by the Fourth Labor Government in 1989, our target was to get inflation between zero and two. Why not zero? Uh, because the estimate was at the time that there's a measurement bias and that 1% measured inflation is actually very close to zero inflation. So that was the target. Um, okay, it's now one to three, but it's not very different from, from no inflation. That's the widespread view. Now, the question is, how do you best achieve that? Well, we know from bitter experience, the Rob Muldoon government tried to uh, eliminate inflation by putting controls on everything, all the prices of wages uh, of uh, goods and services and wages and dividends, etc., and it didn't work. So how do you fight inflation? Uh, well, the, the widespread international consensus is you best do that by changing the price of money, in other words, changing interest rates. If you make interest rates higher, you reduce the incentive to borrow and increase the incentive to save. And I guess the, the basic assumption is that inflation arises when total demand in the economy exceeds the, the economy's capacity to produce at stable prices. Mm. If demand exceeds that, then other things being equal, prices start going up. Conversely, when, inflate, when demand falls below the economy's capacity to produce, uh, prices begin to fall. Uh, so the Reserve Bank's task is to try to keep the demand in the economy as close to the economy's capacity as they can. When the, through the lockdowns, the government was borrowing money off the Reserve Bank. Is that correct? I got uh, that around the right way? It's complicated, wasn't it? It was complicated. That's right. They didn't borrow directly from the Reserve Bank and, and have never done so for a long time. 
not okay. since the 80s. Uh, what the Reserve Bank did at that time was buy government bonds okay. in the market in an attempt to reduce long-term interest rates. And they were spending a billion a week at times doing that. That's correct, yeah. A billion is a lot of money, Don. And uh, not so much if you say it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I had a joke I used to explain it. It's a uh, million dollars is a hundred dollars stack of a hundred dollar bills stacked a meter high. Yeah. And you can picture that. Yeah. But no one gets that a billion is it's a kilometer high. That's right. It's, it's, and it, ro- it rolls off the tongue like a million, a billion, right. million, they're all impossible yeah. numbers to us. Yeah. But it's a thousand times that meter high $100 bills. Right. A billion a week. And so that was, of course, that got us through the lockdown. Hallelujah. We were sitting at home watching Netflix, eating chips, drinking beer, um, and ordering on Amazon. It was fantastic. But just like as the pounds gathered around our waistlines, that billion dollars was creating a lot of demand without the production to go with it around the world. Yeah, that's right. Around the world. That's right. And so unless carefully managed and the sharp medicine came on before it was considered necessary almost, we were always going to have this problem. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, it's it's also true that some economies got by with almost no inflation. I mean, mm. Japan had almost no inflation. China had no almost no inflation, et cetera. So some countries either got clever or got lucky. I'm not quite sure which they were. But, but certainly US, UK, European Union, uh, New Zealand, Australia, all had inflation which was much higher than their targeted inflation rate. You've been on our show before, Don, and you said the big thing, in fighting inflation is what people expect to happen. Yeah. So what the government and particularly the Reserve Bank governor has to do is snuff out the expectation that prices are going to forever increase. Of course, when you were knocking inflation for six, we'd endured inflation for years and years and years. One of the fascinating things to me is inflation for us now is an aberration, not the other way around. I mean, when you started in Reserve Bank Governor, we all thought you had an impossible job because we'd never known living and we'd never known zero to two inflation, right? You're about the only person in the country that believed it was possible, sort of thing. But now, business people, homeowners, uh, everyday people doing their shopping, they expect inflation now to end, I think. Yeah, I I think that's right. I'm a bit nervous about the uh, current wage expectations. I mean, we've had quite significant uh, wage demands recently, unsurprisingly, given where inflation is. But the risk is that if that continues for very long, people start thinking that 5 or 6% is normal. 
I must say, then we first targeted zero to two, even in the Reserve Bank. Most people thought this is nuts. We never get never get it. Really? Yeah. Well, I said, you were like you were like Winston Churchill going into a defeatist cabinet, saying we can beat the Germans. Um, <laughs> almost, almost. <laughs> Most of my colleagues thought we would get it to five without too much trouble. Okay. That could, and that was sort of regarded as as good. But uh, Roger Douglas made it very clear. He meant no. He meant price stability, not five percent inflation. Because even at five percent, you know, prices double every what every fourteen years. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So. Adrian Orr can do it. Um, he must be also troubled because governments like spending money and opposition parties trying to win government, like promising to spend money. And the flip side of monetary policy, which is to say uh, money supply and interest rates, is government spending, fiscal policy. Yep. And the two are usually at loggerheads because you have a government spending like a drain, spending more than it's got, and therefore in of itself creating this demand right through the economy without producing anything. And you've got the Reserve Bank trying to throttle demand that doesn't match production, which is a simplistic way of saying that the 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 monetary policy is having to fight this fiscal policy, right? That that's right. And I think, uh, to be fair, Adrian Orr has made the point a couple of times that monetary policy needs mates. I think it was an expression which Ruth Richardson invented yes, indeed. back in the early nineties. And and that's absolutely correct. Um, the most remarkable but thing politicians need votes. Well, that's right. But I think perhaps the most remarkable thing that happened during my entire fourteen years as governor. Uh, took place in 1996, when we had a national government wanting to reduce taxes. Bill Birch was the Minister of Finance, and he actually wrote to me formally and said, we plan to reduce taxes. Can we do that without prompting an aggressive monetary policy response? Wow. Uh, so he understood the relationship between fiscal and monetary policy, and since he was, of course, the government and, and had specified the inflation target it was a reasonable thing for him to say, uh, given that I've given you that inflation target, can you still meet it without unduly cranking up interest rates if I cut taxes? So he understood very clearly that interrelationship. Was that exchange made public at the time? Uh, I think it was. I can't be absolutely Because isn't that so interesting compared to what it was previously when literally the Prime Minister of the day, most famously Robert Muldoon, would literally get on the throne yep. and tell the Reserve Bank Governor what he and he he could do That's and when he could do yep. it. Yep, yep. When Roger thought, became Minister, of course, his, his instruction to Treasury, find a way of Muldoon-proofing monetary policy. That was the expression he used. Um, I shouldn't do this to you, but I always remember you telling me that the previous governor of the Reserve Bank had a car and a driver. And people may not know this who don't live in Wellington, but the Reserve Bank, correct me if I got this memory wrong, because memories are funny things, would the Reserve Bank is 
on the terrace, but right opposite the beehive. Literally, you'd cross the street. And did he get the car to go to the beehive? Yeah, I mean, that that your memory is pretty accurate, Rodney. I mean, the story was that I'd been governor a couple of weeks, and my secretary reminded me that I had a mini- meeting with the Minister of Finance, and the car was downstairs waiting for me. <laughs> I, I governor must be uh, the, the minister must have been in in Days Bay or something of the kind uh, for some reason. But no, no, he was in his office, as you say, in the Beehive, and it's about two hundred yards. Uh, you'd normally uh, walk it in in what three minutes, less than that. Yeah. So it was crazy. But it was symptomatic of the fact that at that point, the Reserve Bank had I don't know if your listeners are interested in this point, but central banks create what's called seniorage income. Seniorage income is something that only central banks have, reserve banks have, because we give pieces of paper and now pieces of plastic out as banknotes, uh, which we sell for value. We take that value invested in government bonds, typically. So if we have note issue of, say, $3 billion, as we did when I left the role of Reserve Bank, invested at, say, government bonds at that point about 6%, it means you have an annual income of $180 million arising from that note issue. It's called seniorage income. You have no offsetting costs. You don't have to put, you don't have money on deposit. So you don't have enough. 180 million bucks is a lot of money. Good business if you can get it. Oh, absolutely right. An awful lot of, of uh, salaries and artworks and, and, and luxurious dinners. And people don't realize that the 1989 Act, which specified an inflation target, et cetera, also deprived the central bank of that seniorage income. The Treasury and the Minister said, that should belong to the Crown. It shouldn't be at your discretion to spend it as you like. And it was. It had been. Absolutely. I did not know that. And handed out over the balance as a dividend to the Treasury. But the first crack went at running the Reserve Bank. And as a consequence, the Reserve Bank was, in my view, grossly overstaffed and and in many respects overpaid. Because you took the staff down enormously, right? Yeah, when I when I started, uh, the staff was about five hundred and fifty. When I left, mind you, that was nearly fourteen years later, uh, one hundred eighty five. Um, and and there were a number of reasons for that. But yes, we we cut the staff quite drastically, and we made all kinds of other savings. Uh, the, the funniest one is is involved the banknotes. You might you remember may recall this. Um, we told the company printing our banknotes that we were going to have to go to competitive tender because we would got this very tight constraint on our spending, which the minister had laid down. And they said, you can't. We said, why not? They said, because we uh, own the copyright on the New Zealand banknotes. No. When we went to decimal currency way back in the 60s, uh, someone had signed away the copyright on the banknotes. To a a private company? Yeah. No way. Private company was, was a subsidiary of Delarue, and the big British note printing company. And uh, when we went to, they said we couldn't go to tender. So at that point, we changed the design of the banknotes. You may recall pre-early 90s, all the banknotes had the Queen on them. And I decided to, to get around this copyright issue. That was the reason which prompted it. We should have New Zealanders on the banknotes. So we kept the Queen on the 20 and put New Zealanders, of course, on the other four. And... Uh, went to competitive tender. De La Rue won the tender again, but the price per note was about a third lower than it had been. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. How did you choose which New Zealanders would go on the banknote? 
Well, that was that was a fun. That was one of my most intriguing thing I did during my fourteen years. In some ways, uh, I decided we should have one male Pakeha, one female Pakeha, uh, one Maori of either gender, and one sports person of either gender and any ethnicity. I, I should say that they have to be dead. International convention is very strong. You never put a live person on a banknote unless the head of state. So the queen because they could. We could turn out they're paedophile or something. Absolutely. So, <laughs> it's very bad to have a paedophile on your $5 bill. It is. So we put um, Rutherford on the at male Pakeha. We was the only Nobel Prize we had at that point. So just back that up a bit. You decided that, and you presumably ran it past your board, that that was... I don't re- I, I probably did, but the board doesn't have decision-making. No, so it was your decision. I, I recall ringing the Prime Minister uh, at the time, and uh, he said, oh, I'll put it to Cabinet on Monday. I said, Prime Minister, actually, it's not a Cabinet decision. <laughs> <laughs> How exciting. Yeah. So, sorry, I interrupted you. It was your decision, and you chose Rutherford. Yeah. yeah. The female Pākehā chose herself in a sense. The note was coming out in 1993. Oh, yes. Centenary of women getting the vote. Kate Shepard was the principal uh, protagonist for that cause. So that was easy. I thought choosing a Maori would be very tough. So many different iwi, king movement, anti-king movement, etc. But, of course, we chose uh, Aparanata. And I had no pushback at all. He was a giant. He was a giant. That's right. I got no complaints from anybody. Then, of course, find a dead sports person. And I, I thought, Lovelock, he won a big race, but that was all he really achieved. And he died under mysterious circumstances mm. at 36. Nipia, oh, Nipia was a great all black, but actually, not only was he the second Maori, he was the same iwi as Nata. I thought that's mm. pushing my luck a bit. Um, dead. And finally, of course, I broke all the conventions and put Hillary on when he was still alive. Um, Did you ring him? Of course. In fact, what did he say? I rang his home. <laughs> it was quite funny. Uh, Lady Hillary said, uh, look, Ed's in, in Europe, but he won't want to be in a banknote. I can assure you of that. <laughs> but here's his phone number in case you want to ring him. <laughs> so I rang <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was quite enthusiastic. And interestingly, he was the only one that I encountered any pushback about at all, um, surprisingly, uh, in my view. Um, I know why. And there were two kinds of pushback, and none of them complained that he was alive, but but uh, some people said he um, lived with a woman who was not his wife when he was High Commissioner of Delhi, and, of course, he subsequently married her. They were, mm-hmm. He was a widower. She was a widow. And they finally got married. But but the other objection, of course, was that in 1975, yes. he, he he led Citizens for Rolling. I've never forgiven him. No. Well, <laughs> there were some people in the National Party who, who were kind of brassed off because he'd been obviously anti-Muldoon. Um, well, um, he had that wonderful iconic status. Yeah which crossed everything. And I was never a Muldoon supporter. I never voted for Muldoon. And I would have been a very young man, you know, in 1975, you know, 1920. Um, But 
that to me was like an all black telling you how to vote. It was just not proper. And you couldn't have that godlike status and descend to petty politics to me and those ads in the paper and telling me or others what they should think and do. And it was, um, I never forgave him. Uh, well, you might have been uh, some of those people objecting, but in yes. fact, it was interestingly, I chose him finally for two reasons. One is, uh, before I'd made decisions, I would ask people at dinner parties or whatever, who do you think should win the banknote? And before I could say they have to be dead, Hillary was almost always the first person suggested. Mm. The second thing, I was visiting my my then brother-in-law in Singapore and uh, sitting in his home watching television, and an ad for the Shangri-La Hotel came on, and Ed Hillary was shown walking through the hotel, walking through the hotel grounds. No caption, no voiceover. And I said to my brother-in-law, I said, I know who that is, but in Singapore? He said, everybody knows who that is. I thought, there can't be a better known New Zealander no. anywhere. So I broke all the rules and, and put him on. Well, good for you. Um, and thankfully, his only indiscretion was saying to vote for Rowling. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, and living with a widower. Um, and sin, but he was famous. I felt for how he used his fame. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if he just climbed Everest and left it at that, he would be like George Nepia. But yep. Hillary went on to give so much back. Yep. And in particular, to me, it sends shivers down my spine to think of all the work he did for the Nepalese. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, lost his wife. Um, yeah. Because he could have just lived a grand old life, right? Yeah, that's right. He could have dined out, been famous, um, wined and dined, had endorsements, commercialized his fame, had a TV show. He was absolutely classically humble and used the fame that he had to benefit other people. That's right. That, yep. to me, is what made him marvellous. And, and even uh, right towards the end of his life, after his portrait was on the banknote, uh, Rotary International approached him and said, look, would you mind signing some banknotes which we can used to to sell and raise money for the Nepalese orphans that he was trying to help. And he signed a thousand five dollar banknotes uh, and, and marketed them. Yeah. And, you signed Rugby International. So, yeah, that I had my signature on, of course. You printed. signed more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I imagined your full-time job being sitting in your office just signing banknotes, Don. <laughs> What's it like, by the way, walking around New Zealand? And seeing your name on every banknote. It's I reckon that would be cool. It, it was very cool. Very cool. Only once got me into trouble. I was buying some groceries at the supermarket. <laughs> you gave a check and they said it didn't match. No. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't have any, any ID on me. I had an ID, so I produced this banknote. I think it was $20, I think, from memory. And and uh, the girl behind the counter was sure I was trying to bribe her. <laughs> 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 I did it um, once. 
And what's it like to see your name slowly disappearing? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> fortunately, my ego it doesn't seem to be too sensitive, uh, so <laughs> I'm not unduly worried about that. <laughs> I just think, I mean, I used to think that you have your name on every banknote and people are carefully hoarding them and kids are counting them and money's everything and there's your signature up there with the Queen and Aparanada and Ed Hillary and Kate Shepard. Um, that, to me, was fabulous. So the inflation thing is... Interest rates have to go up because if they don't, it's pain now. If they don't, inflation will continue to increase and increase and increase until the country economy actually collapses. Or you then decide when it gets really bad to stop inflation and the medicine is a lot worse because it's become an endemic within the economy. And so this is just something that we have to do to maintain a stable economy, uh, prosperity, and um, a dollar today being worth a dollar next week. Yep, that's right. And the quicker that we do it, the better it is for all of us. Absolutely all of us. Yeah, because as long as it lasts, as you said earlier, inflation expectations uh, become entrenched. You start assuming prices are going to go up. You behave as if they're going to go up. In fact, I may have told the story on your program previously of, of the Television New Zealand contest. They asked viewers to write in about their suggestion on how to control inflation. And uh, I was one of the on the judging panel. The person who got second, I can't recall who got first, but the guy who got second suggested that because inflation is caused by people expecting prices to go up, in other words, inflation expectations, you should spread a rumour that prices are about to fall. And if people believe it, they'll stop buying. And retailers, of course, desperate to get some sales, would cut their prices. And they my gosh, they were right. So <laughs> we can a self-fulfilling prophecy in the same way it does on the other way up. And I thought he should have uh, got uh, got the first prize, actually, because yes. inflation expectations are very, very important in the whole process. The, the governor's got to make it absolutely clear that come hell or high water, he's going to control inflation. Mm. And uh, you know, and that he's got the government. The government's got his back. Interestingly, right. about spreading rumors, I've just read one of the greatest books I've ever read, uh, Robert Caro's massive biography of Lyndon Johnson, and in the twenties and thirties. It was standard practice in politics to pay people to spread rumors. And it was hilarious. And like they were they were experts at it. And they'd literally go into town and go into the local pub or local milk bar or whatever it was where people would congregate and they'd watch and they'd work out who was the person that everyone would listen to. And then they'd go across and buy them a drink and then say, oh, that candidate so-and-so, you've got no idea, you know, about his private life, and then tell a story, and it would go right through that town, and then they'd go to the next town and the next town. So there was sort of like pre-internet um, rumour spreading, and and it was, a, it was astonishingly effective. Isn't that interesting to me? Um, that they paid people to do that. <laughs> so, how many rumor spreaders have we got this election? <laughs> um, and what what's the good what's the juicy one this year? Um yeah. so 
that's great, Don. Now, you were involved before you were Reserve Bank Governor. You were involved many, many, I think in a couple, of tax reports for the government, like massive tax reports because the tax system had become ramshackle. Four reports. Sorry? Four. Four. Mm. Um, So you are well across um, the tax system as a whole rather than the minutiae of tax law and tax policy. It was the idea of what we should be taxing um, in large. Were you involved in the GST report, or was that McCaw for some reason? I got that. Who, who, did, who did the GST report? Uh, I did. Oh. It was, I did. I was the chairman of a three-person committee. Who was on the committee? Uh, Alan Martin, who was a Wellington-based retailer, yeah. a big uh, appliance retailer. Yeah. And um, someone oh, else. Uh, yeah, a lawyer. Um uh, just momentarily can't. Don't worry. Don't worry. Lawyer, anyway, yeah. And and what year? Do you remember the year that was recommended? Oh, eighty-five. Of course, eighty-five. It was the year after uh, eighty-four government took office. And that was the report that recommended a consumption tax. GST. Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, the Treasury and Roger Douglas together had decided on a consumption tax. Yes. And our task was to design it. Ah. And and uh, it, it was. Broadly accepted to be on everything, but but we had to do all the sort of uh, details, and and Roger Douglas basically said, look, large companies can handle any complexity in the tax system. They've computerized systems and so on, but small companies can't. And he'd heard horror stories from the UK where small companies were sort of buried in in costs trying to operate their VAT, their value added tax, which is just the same as a GST. So he said, look, I want you to design the GST, which minimizes the compliance costs. And of course, it takes no genius at all to work out that you do that by having one rate on everything. And and, uh, that's, of course, the system we have. Uh, And I think Singapore has a similar system, but pretty well no one else does, because uh, the political pressures on on governments mean that uh, lots of things get exempted at, at enormous cost. I mean, India has four different GST rates and lots of exemptions as well. I mean, it's, 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 it's mind-boggling. Now, we have to go through this because it sounds so plausible, so straightforward, so obvious, because you say, oh, I'll take GST off fruit and veggies or... Is that what Labour's actually said, or is that what someone else said they said? It's some what someone else said they said. I think, I think Mr. Willis <laughs> said that's what they have in mind to do. Okay. Now, and and Labour hasn't denied that. Yeah. Okay. And then New Zealand First says we're even better than that and more caring. We'll take GST or food. And you think, that's amazing. Yeah, why not? Because why, why, why should we tax something? that is so necessary. And we have had this argument, Don, literally since 1985. And every time it comes up, it gets comprehensively demolished for a thousand and one reasons. It is that bad, it's 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 unconscionable. 
We're going to get to that. But something else in the larger picture is also missing. Because people seem to forget that if the government doesn't raise that amount of tax on food, they either have to raise that somewhere else or cut spending yep. or borrow. Yep. And it's like this half half asked view of the world. Oh, just cut or make food cheaper. And it's like, where did it come from, that money? And so that bigger picture of thinking about tax is not seen. It's this idea that government can just make things free. Because in a sense, from a budgetary point of view, taking GST off food or fruit, we'll just say food rather than fruit and veggies, easier to say food. Or If you take tax or food, you could get there just by saying, oh, we'll subsidize it. Right? You would say, well, that'd be stupid, right? But that's essentially what you're doing mm-hmm. um, in a budgetary sense. But I want you to walk us through how it's, I would say, impossibly complex to take GST or fruit and veggies because you'll never get the edges right. And you'll create a nightmare for every business in New Zealand. Explain that to us. Yeah, I mean, that's quite right. People talk about exempting food or fruit and vegetables. Um, What they probably mean, technically, is what they call zero rating, uh, those items. And it's a difference because if you exempt something, a business selling an exempt product can't claim back the GST the business has paid on the inputs for that for that uh, uh, business. So that would be very, very complex. Instead, I think what they would propose to do, what actually would do if they put this dopey policy, would be what they call zero rating the product, which means, as, as they do with exports, if you're producing exports, you don't charge your foreign customer GST but you are able to claim back the GST that you have paid as a business buying the inputs for that, for that product. So it would be zero rating. But the complexity arises partly because of the definitional question. What is what is a fruit or vegetable? What is a, what is a bit of food? Uh, how do you define it? Do you, if you're tempting fresh fruit and vegetables for the sake of argument, what about uh, chopped pineapple? Is that a fresh fruit and vegetable? Uh, what about juices? And, and most countries have dealt with that, but it's a it's a bit of a nightmare. Uh, all countries have, well, many countries have exemptions, and it's 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 dopey. But the second issue, which Roger Douglas pointed out, once you say we won't tax fruit and vegetables, say, what about doctor's bills? Mm. What about books? What about medicines? What about children's shoes? So many good things on the face of it, we wouldn't like to tax. So once you open the uh, open the floodgates to one desirable product. What about all the other desirable products? And the result is you have a, have a real uh, Swiss cheese with holes through it, uh, and it's a nightmare. What you're likely to get then, of course, is a much higher rate of GST. Our 15% is well below the OECD average, which is about 19%. And most of the countries in Europe have a GST rate above 20. 
So we tax everything, but it's a much lower rate than most other countries which do have GST. Uh, and, and the final issue um, is, is uh, most of the benefit of cutting this tax doesn't go to the poor. If you try to help people who are struggling with their budget, why would you give a, 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 a tax reduction which actually helps mostly you and me? Mm. And Because and, we, we spend a lot on food because we can afford to. That's right. And we buy luxury food. We don't mm. buy cheap white bread. We buy mm. luxury stuff. Mm. So we give away a lot. The government gives away a lot of revenue to people they're not actually trying to help. So it's a, it's a very inefficient way of helping people which the government really wants to help. And, of course, the classic approach in economics is to separate out the two objectives. So with a tax, you're trying to raise a target amount of money, at least cost, which is to make it simple, tax everything at one rate, and um, less distortionary, which is to keep it simple at one rate. And um, then you say, now I want to help poor people. And you say, well, I'll help poor people by boosting their income. Yep. And that's then targeted. Yep, exactly So, right. um, Well, we do a rather poor job of that in New Zealand too, but you can actually target your support to those that need it. And so if you are looking at... Um, <clears throat> helping people with their weekly bill at the supermarket, you'd say, well, okay, let's give them some income support. Um, and, of course, then the dopiness of all that comes out because there's so many supports there now, it's it's um, almost crazy. But it's a beautiful soundbite for a politician. It sounds so caring. Yeah. And I don't think it's unfair to say this, Chris Hipkins, Winston Peters, Chris Luxon, David Seymour, they will say what they need to say to win votes. It's sort of a necessity, isn't it? I mean, Chris Luxon is probably the one under the most constraint because he's the would-be contender for prime minister. And so he has to be um, accountable for what he promises, whereas David Seymour, and I've been in his position, he can sort of say things, and he doesn't want to say economically illiterate things because people that support it would eviscerate him, but he doesn't actually have to do it like Chris Luxon has to. That's true. That's true. And you've been in both positions, leader of national heading into election and leader of I just suddenly realised that. You've got a great insight into this. So we have to see through that political promise. Now, I want to finish up, Don, and thank you for that. I just have, I love talking to you because that being Reserve Bank Governor, that was something very, very special. Yeah, that was the highlight of my career, uh, both because it was a large block of time, but secondly, because I was lucky enough to be in that position when Roger Douglas said, let's change the whole framework. Yeah. And, and uh, we pioneered something quite internationally unique. Yeah. Inflation. No, it was, it was um, and just that little story of the car 
of choosing, just choosing. Are they, and they're still on the banknote, those people, are they? Yes, they are. My signature, of course, is gone, but those yes. people have changed, yeah. Because it'd be an upset to change it, so you just stick with it. Uh, well, I, mean, I think in due course there may, may come a time. But, I mean, I think rather We could than... put Willie Jackson or someone on next. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's right. Oh, Jacinda Ardern. Indeed, indeed. Dame, Dame Jacinda Ardern. Dame Jacinda Ardern. Yeah. And people forget what a, a giant Rutherford was. I didn't realise oh, myself. Oh, yeah, no. But Charles Murray did a book looking at who who's contributed most to human knowledge since 800 BC. Physicists, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Rutherford, that order. Wow. Yeah, he's right up there among the giants. And, of course, he was a great encourager of students mm-hmm. who went on to, I think, win Nobel Prizes, you know, like Rutherford's yeah. people he encouraged and mentored. Yeah, that's right. He was a giant. It's too easy to forget. Um, I just read last night about Kate Shepard for some reason. I don't know why. And I hadn't realized that her big thing was temperance. So she was dead against alcohol. And she was in the, what was it called? The temperance? Women's Christian temperance movement. You've got it, right? Women's Christian temperance movement. And the reason they wanted the vote was to stop the booze and (laughs) drugs and improve the sexual mores, right? And I rolled around the floor. I, I was on my own, just, you know, everyone in the family, because I was just reading it, were wondering what the hell had happened, because I was rolling around the around the floor laughing my head off. I couldn't stop it. Because the idea of the likes of Helen Clark and Judith Tizard and Jacinda Ardern fawning over this woman, right, when her big thing was being a good Christian, being sexually proper and not boozing or or whatever, um, they only took the little bit of getting the vote. Isn't that a, did you, and you knew that all along? Uh, I had some of that background. Yeah, yeah. Probably well, I'm going to see her. I'm going to see her on the note now with a quite new interest. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm a great follower. You know, the Christian, hundred percent, not boozing, hundred percent, not taking drugs, hundred percent. Woman vote, mm, yeah, it was, I guess. <laughs> but um, she's like this um, amazing person, and they forget um, who she was um, and all of that. Don, just before you go, would you think, would you like to be in Chris Luxon's shoes? if you were 20 years younger and taking over, obviously we'd all like to be prime minister, I guess, but it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough, but uh, I'm, I take heart from the fact that Seymour is driving a very hard uh, kind of policy line. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a national act coalition could be quite powerful. Yes. But how do they take the people with them? Well, uh, at the moment, the people are very, very grumpy with what they've got. Mm. 
So I suspect that helps them a bit. Would you, I'd almost park the economy, just let it tick along and deal with those fundamental issues of citizenship and sovereignty. Well, I mean, on that, Seymour is very, very good. I've yeah. heard it a number of times, and he's he's unambiguously clear that there's no future at all if we're going to divide us ourselves on the basis of race. And uh, that because I, you, you can take the majority of New Zealand with you on free speech and one source of citizenship, but there's a generation of activists growing up. Yep. And it's now just not a few who are going to view that government as Nazis, literally. And I could imagine the country becoming ungovernable. Yeah, it was a very good article by Chris Trotter some time oh, Okay, ago, good, yeah. Um, which, who made that point very strongly. It'll be a hell of a hard to change the direction on this issue, given where we've got to. Won't be easy at all. But we have to be up for it, don't we? And we do, otherwise we're done for. Mm. And I mean, when you think back to your years in Reserve Bank Governor, advising on tax policy, even leader of the National Party and leader of the ACT Party, while all this was bubbling away, particularly in the latter years, the main thrust was the economy. Yep. In 84, we faced a calamity and a threat to our economic sovereignty. In 2023, we face a threat to our sovereignty, yeah. to our nationhood, to That's who right. we are. That's right. And we have to see it in those terms. And in some ways, it's easier because it's not that economic pain, but it's the social expectations that years and years of, well, I'll call it for what it is, appeasement of yeah. activists has yeah. led us to. Yeah. And an appeasement without principle. Yeah. I uh, Before we go quickly, I'll tell you one little story, Don. One of the greatest things that happened to me, apart from meeting you, was I had dinner with Thomas Sowell, the great oh, really? economist. Oh, yes. Wow, when was that? 1989. He came to the Mount Pellerin Conference. And I detected, I watched him, I saw him walk across the lobby, and James Buchanan called out to him, and he looked nervous and looked away and ran to the lift. And I realized he was an intensely shy and private man. That's right. And for, for listeners, he's the great black economist who studied under Gary Becker and, uh, no, sorry, uh, George Stigler and Milton Friedman did his PhD and went on to become, uh, he's still alive, he's 93, 94, he's just a fabulous author. Still writing, yeah. Still writing. And he, um, and so because he was a black man, he stood out, you know, in Christchurch. And I got into a lift and he hopped into the lift later on. And I sort of looked at him, and it was like a young boy meeting 
his hero and like I was a fanboy. And I sort of said, oh, you're Thomas Sowell because <laughs> he was at a free market conference and he was black, right? Well, who else could he be? <laughs> and I said, oh, you're Thomas Sowell? And he said, yes. And I said, you know, I would really like to take you for dinner with some of my students. And he just looked at me and said, I'd love that. Mm-hmm. And we went for a dinner with like, you know, half a dozen graduate students. And it was the greatest dinner of my life. We went to this funny little Indian place or like it was a, just a Mexico. It was like a, just a little restaurant. It was like sitting in a, in, a, in a seminar room. He just talked his next three books to us. Wow. And then he ended up, I said to him, well, what would you like to do in Christchurch? And he said he'd like to take pictures of the Port Hills. I said, oh, I'll take you up. So I got my old Ford Mark I Cortina and drove him around the Port Hills and took him home for dinner. And um, he had been an intelligence officer in the Korean War and had learned to take pictures. And I thought it would take him five minutes. I thought, what am I going to do with him all day to drive him around the Port Hills and get his little camera out and take shots? No, no, no. He had a um, tripod, a box. He had one of those curtains, blankets that you put over your head. Wow. It took him like an hour or two to take a picture. And then he came to our place for dinner. And um, 1989, and I said to him, oh, what would you do about this, you know, treaty Maori stuff? Because for listeners' benefit, he had written about affirmative action being a worldwide disaster that everywhere it was tried it had left to it had led to violence not just political dissension but violence and he said well how much do you think it will take you know to fix it and i said well i said look for some reason the fiscal envelope wasn't a thing then um but it must have been being discussed and I said, there's a talk. You're not going to believe this, Tom. But there's talk of a government giving these tribes that didn't exist, these, you know, would-be chances who suddenly decided they hit up an iwi. There's talk of giving them a billion dollars. Madness. And he looked at me and said, make it 10. Yeah. I said, 10 billion. I said, there'd be a bloody riot. I said, that's a ridiculous amount. And he said, that's the point. You make it the most ridiculous amount that you can think of. And then you say, and that's it. And you immediately disband the Waitangi Tribunal, cut out every reference to Maori in every piece of legislation in New Zealand and say from this moment we're not even going to recognize Maori. Yeah. We're all one citizen. Yeah. And he says, I promise you, it'll prove cheap. Yeah. And I thought the great Tom Soul is a little nutty. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. He was absolutely right. 20 yeah. billion would have been cheap. Yeah, that's right. 
That's right. great story. I've never forgotten him telling me that. And um, because he had studied, and of course he had been a Marxist, was well understanding of Marxist theory, written a book on Marxism, had known all the Marxists, and knew exactly what the agenda was, piece by piece by bit, to create this racial tension and to destroy um, economies in Western society. Mm-hmm. So there you go, Don. Well, you're mm-hmm. on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had a discursive conversation across Casey Costello through to Tom Sowell. We did GST. We did inflation. We did why Ed Hillary's on the banknote. Um, we covered what it's like to have your signature on all the money in New Zealand. And we talked of how the Reserve Bank used to have a lot of money for doing nothing and that the governor would take the lift down, hop in his driven car, cross the street and go and see the Minister of Finance. Did the did the driver have a top hat or a tall? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's great. It's like the Queen. Don Brash, uh, former everything, done everything, and still going strong and still would make a great leader of the ACT Party, the great leader of the National Party, would still make a great Reserve Bank governor, a very dear friend of mine and a great New Zealander who has contributed such a lot. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Don. You enjoy the rest of your day. I know you're going to be working. Thank you. that's what you do. Thank you. Exactly true. I will be working. (laughs) Thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio or send me a text at 2057. Oh, I've got such a lovely email from a chiropractor. I won't read you out his name. I'm going to email him privately. But he looked after my mum and dad for many, many years, and they loved him. And I never had his details, but they loved him. And he sent me an email so I can um, respond to him. It is so lovely because you know a lot of people with through your mum and dad, and when they die, it's quite hard to um, contact them because you don't know the details. I went into the butcher, and I told the butcher that my mum had died and how much she appreciated him, and he just burst into tears because he liked her such a lot visiting, and I just feel heartened by that email. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Rodney, can you ask if freezing warm milk maintains its healthy enzymes, et cetera, is it better to stay fresh, Stacey? I don't know. I will. I remember looking that up once and being advised, and you know what? I can't remember the answer, but I do know this. I never froze it. <laughs> so I always think fresh is best. I don't like freezing much. Just tuned in and delighted to hear my suggested person chatting to Rodney. Very jealous now not to live closer to the good farm. Thanks, Sarah. Yes, indeed. I wish I lived close to the good farm. Rodney, there's been talk at times of milk in supermarkets has been reconstructed from powder. Could have been. It tastes like it has. Cheese in France comes from untreated milk. Absolutely. Hi, Rodney. I don't want to 
put your raw milk farmer down. He obviously is a good farmer and businessman. I just don't want to point out that all milk drinking species on earth produce their milk specifically for their babies. It's actually baby growth fluid. It is supplied by the mother until the weaning stage, whereby they don't drink milk anymore during their life. And humans drink a milk that is not designed for us. It is designed in nature to grow a calf into a cow rapidly. Cow's milk causes many health problems in humans. The casein in the milk is known to cause cancer. That was researched and found by Professor T. Colin Campbell of Cornell University. His book is well worth reading, The China Study. The most comprehensive study of nutrition ever conducted, a study over a 10-year period during the 80s. It was done in conjunction with Oxford University of England and the Chinese Health Academy. Mm, not selling it. He also wrote another book, Whole. It is about a diet of whole foods that is superior to taking supplements. He says that we should not eat fragmented foods. Wally, who we've known for years, will tell you the same thing as well. Enjoying your Real Talk program, though, and have just joined the Foundation Club yesterday. I've been a VFF member from the start and have listened to the radio from the start. We also do pop-ups in Palmy. Good on you, John. And thank you for that. I'm not so sure about the China study. And it sounds a bit esoteric. I have read it uh, by Colin Campbell. And um, I don't think it's the most comprehensive study of nutrition ever. Um, the far more comprehensive study, and again, I don't want to get into a battle of academics because what do I know? Uh, it was Western A. Price, who, through dint of circumstance, was able to study hundreds of years of nutrition. Came out strongly in favor of milk. But, John, I respect you and I love you for your work. And you and I can discuss this more, I'm sure. Through faith by grace, we are saved. Your will, Lord, will be done, not mine. Through gratitude of God's grace of washing away our sins by way of the cross, we strive not to sin. My humble thoughts, Paul. Thank you, Paul. See David Pawson on, quote, why I don't believe, once saved, always saved. Also read A Pilgrim's Progress. I will get to them. I'm reading a great book now on the history of the Bible, which I'm enjoying, and it's a big book taking me a while. Rodney, thanks for a great interview with Ashley Church, and as a Christian, I encourage you to humble yourself before Jesus and accept his gift of forgiveness and eternal life, which will bring you such blessing and joy. Jesus, others, yourself, regards, Alistair. Thank you, Alistair. I, um, Ashley Church texted me because I was seeking advice, and he said for me to pray. And I said I would, and I haven't yet. I don't know. Do you have to believe before you pray and be a Christian, or can you just pray? Or, no, I'm working my way through that. There's a long one, a very good one, a long email, which I won't share about helping me. Um, dear Rodney, those pointing, it's a, it's a lovely one, and it, um, it's from Robert from Tauranga, and thank you for that, Robert. I will read it, but it's too long for me to read, and I don't think you intend for me to read it. Um, dear Rodney, those pointing out you talking over people, puh, you're doing fine, sir. I love your respect for people and your enthusiasm when discussing issues, concepts that fascinate you. With respect, Rob Tauranga. Thank you, Rob. Hi, Rodney. I love how all your interviews are conversational. I love your passion too, Kendall. Thank you. Dear Rodney, my humble apologies as I've given references and commentaries on Christianity to guide you. It is your walk. Pray for guidance when reading the Bible and let it expose the old man in you to bring out the new babe in Christ. Ah. <laughs> God bless, it's making me cry. God bless, brother in Christ. Thank you. 
Thank you from the depths of our souls to Rodney that you're there broadcasting the truth, incorporating the good news. The love and appreciation is mutual, Russell and Jacqueline. Thank you both. Steve, thanks, Rodney. You make sense in this nonsensical world. So happy there is RCR in New Zealand. Initially, I thought the platform was to counter to the lamestream, but no. Plunkett is a show for the establishment, clearly controlled opposition. Yeah, I agree. With RCR, there is none of that crap. Thank you and your colleagues for offering clear thought. Well, thank you. I don't think we have the answers, but at least we let people talk and we can respect everyone. 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 Thanks, Rodney. You make sense in this. Oh, it's one again. Sorry. Hi, Rodney. Great to hear you talking with Ashley this morning. In that vein, if you came and asked, Jesus will give you living water from which you'll never thirst. John 4.14, but whoever drinks of that water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to the everlasting life. There's something about that King James Bible New Testament that is so beautiful and so stunning when you read the words. You have to say, even if you're an atheist, which I'm not now, you can't help but hear those words and be moved. And you can understand why they have moved people and motivated people to do such great things. I was also thinking you might like to consider contacting Ray Comfort, who you may remember from Christchurch days, having discussions with the wizard in the square. I do remember Ray Comfort. He was a he was in the square preaching. He was wonderful. He has devoted his life to the pursuit of God, just a thought. Thank you. Cheers anyway, Graham. Thank you, Graham. Hi, Rodney. I've been enjoying many episodes of your show and appreciate the warmth, empathy, and genuine interest you extend to all those you interview. In regard to your inner quest that you've been mentioning, perhaps another avenue you could look into could be found at unitynz.org. used to be called the Unity School of Christianity. This is something that has been in my life over many years. It offers a more metaphysical and new age approach to God and scripture, relying more on how to think rather than what to think while yet maintaining Christian values and principles. Up to you, of course, but check it out if you feel moved to. Oh, I didn't know what that was, unity. Uh, I remember the Unity School of Christianity in Christchurch. So it's unitynz.org. Thank you. From Bob. Hi, Rodney. I really appreciate your input. I live in Wanaka and would love to chat to you. I feel you want, if you feel you want to do this, contact me. I will. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Rodney. You have been an island in the storm. Oh. Hmm. I don't try to, I'm pleased. Well, everyone listening and everyone contacting me are like islands in, my, in the storm too. We're all islands connecting up. Everything that you've experienced and expressed about COVID, I have felt. If it wasn't for you speaking at the protest and Chantel's live stream, I thought I was going crazy in my little class white Wellington bubble. Thank you. God bless you and all keep doing your marvellous work. Man, we know how that feels. Thank you, Christina. And then the long one from Lorraine, which I will read. Thank you for the wonderful mailbag, everyone. I love it. And please, text me 2057, email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on realitycheck.radio. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, and thank you so much for emailing and texting. I love it. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's 
real talk with Rodney Hyde. The funny thing in politics, isn't it, that we don't, here's the thing that I observe in politics. It's all about the here and now, immediate, no long-term thinking. There's no thinking about sort of secondary consequences of a decision. And there's no thinking about cause and effect. So, oh, food's expensive. Oh, what should we do? Oh, I know what. We'll cut GST. Yeah, that'll make food cheaper. What a great idea. And it sounds so reasonable and so simple. And to a politician, it works. Why? Because people vote for it. But there's no cause and effect. Like, why is food expensive? Well, food's expensive because of government. All those crazy rules and regulations that we put on land use for a start. All those crazy rules and obligations we put on every business for a second. All those crazy rules and regulations we put on employing someone. The third, all the council and apparatus, all the tax that has to be paid, not just GST. You employ someone, P-A-Y-E. You make a profit, pay tax, GST, all of it. That's why food's expensive. It shouldn't be because we should be able just to get on and grow food and sell it without all that cost put on by government. Food's expensive because of government. And then the government comes along and says, oh, we're going to make it cheaper. Well, why do we have GST? Oh, because government wants money. Cut the GST on food, it's going to be short of money. What's it going to do? It's got three choices. Cut government spending, raise tax somewhere else, or borrow the money and tax our children's children. Again, no cause and effect thinking, no secondary effects. If we take the GST there, what does it mean? There's no cause and effect thinking in any of this. And they don't think about what does it mean for businesses trying to fill out their GST forms when you have exemptions. Oh, my goodness. It'll be a madness. Same with inflation. Remember how the politicians and the newspapers, oh, we're going so well. Jacinda Ardern's genius getting through the economy and no one's working. It's going along gangbusters. Yeah, borrowing a billion a week, spending a billion a week we didn't have. Oh, my goodness, we've got inflation. Oh, what's caused that? Oh, no, no, the groceries are going up. Oh, I know what, we'll remove GST. Stop and think and think it through. Think it through. And the politicians aren't interested in solving any problem, fixing anything. They're just interested in getting voted in and saying stuff that'll get them voted in. I know, because I've had that, I've felt that when you're running into an election. So it's up to us to stop and think and think about what does it mean to take the GST or food as if that's going to fix anything. That's like sitting atop the Titanic and saying, hmm, I wonder if that purple deck chair would look better over there, nearer the front of this big boat. Rather than seeing the iceberg 
ripping through the undercarriage. That's what taking GST on food looks like. We should talk more about cause and effect thinking because I think it's the difference between good thinking and bad thinking. And I know reality check radio listeners understand cause and effect thinking. That's why you're here. You're not just floating along on a bubble of media hogwash. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. This is Reality Check Radio. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Oh, what a show we've had. My goodness. It's uh, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Reality Check Radio. And send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. First up, we had Roe Edge. Man, oh, man, it's scary, isn't it, that these women, I never knew they spent 40 minutes to put their swimsuits on. And the idea of doing that in front of a male, big hunking male, who's going to beat you because he's a man and he's staring at you, that is just disgusting. That is just disgusting. We had Don Brash on and we ended up having a wonderful discussion, not just about inflation and GST, but also who's on our notes, who gets to decide, how it was decided. I thought that was pretty funny and those funny little quirky stories about the car. And we had Tane, uh, politics, and I might have got carried away. But I'll blame the man flu because I've been under the weather. But um, I do think we need a sharp, short, sharp correction. So thank you so much for listening. And please do remember we're on a great mission here, and we need to make Rally Check Radio grow and grow fast and we can't do that without you we need you to spread the word to tell your friends and family and people on social media to listen to us but we've also given you an opportunity to become a foundation member to join the club as it were you'll get a great sense of pride from that we hope uh to be part of something that's big and something that matters and that's making a difference but you'll also get some exclusive benefits and one of those is to come backstage Sunday this Sunday the 6th of August and backstage will be myself there'll be Peter Williams here Paul Brennan Cam Slater Marie Buskey we're going to have some fun we'll be able to talk and you can join up to be a foundation member to join the club at www.realitycheck.radio please do this is real talk 
with Rodney Hyde on radio. See you Sunday night. It's going to be great. I'm looking forward to meeting you online, talking face-to-face.